the Augustin Hosinga show with your host Augustin Hosinga. Smack the shit out your bitch ass midget girlfriend, nigga. <laughs> Welcome back to the Agostino Zinger Show, episode number 653, with I, your host, Agostino. This is episode number 653 of the Agostino Zinger Show, and I hope you are doing fine wherever this podcast may find you. I hope you are doing splendid. Wow, today's a bit of a late one. I'm recording this extremely late. I think if you're going to listen to the recording, you will have no idea, but it's about 5 a.m. here in London, and I've decided to just jump on a mic quickly and get some of the thoughts off my head into this microphone, because you know what? This is how this podcast started. This podcast started this way. It started with me not having many friends and trying to basically unload or, yeah, just basically unload or download all these flipping random thoughts rambling in my head that usually would be shared over a beer, over a cocktail, over some food, or just around someone's house or over the phone. But because I don't like talking on the phone and I don't have any friends and I like to get close by myself, I'd like to do it via podcast. So this is the original premise of the show and it kind of got me a bit nostalgic and I was going back into the archives and I was listening to old episodes. I went back to the very first 10 or so episodes of the Agostino Zynga show when I was doing this via a dictaphone. I bought like a Sony dictaphone thing, this little dictaphone that people use if they're going to interview people. And usually, you know, journalists kind of use them a lot and whatnot. And um, I originally bought it because I remember I was going to do this um, zine thing, this like kind of um, stuff that I was going to do early on about grime scene and about the UK rap scene. Because at the time, way back when, there was this sort of divergence happening. The grime scene didn't really pop off or it didn't really go where it was needed to go. All the flipping OGs who kind of spearheaded it were off making pop music or the likes of Rolling Deep and Dizzy Rascal. And then suddenly the UK rap scene kind of started to blow up. And I was, you know, the whole idea behind it is I was going to go interview all these rappers. And I actually did. I actually went, um, I actually went and interviewed Jaja Sos. I interviewed DVS One. I mean DVS. Sorry, I interviewed Young Spray, but none of them came out because guess what? I lost the files on that dictaphone. Well, I lost the dictaphone. Either way, like legendary stories that I remember. You know, whatever. So that dictaphone I ended up using as a podcast uh, microphone, and I'll just basically record myself into the flipping dictaphone, reading articles on the internet, and just upload that raw MP3 to the internet, and that's how it basically started. So I'm kind of returning back to my origins here and i'm having a good time and i'm having a good time so as per usual, this is a live stream that i'm doing here i'm gonna obviously cut this and record this obviously and kind of put it up on audio so you can listen to it on the podcast side of it so if you are not subscribed to the podcast make sure you do all the links to my podcast to subscribe to it are in the description so you can find that down below there and you can subscribe to it i'm on spotify i'm on apple itunes all that stuff make sure you subscribe if you do enjoy it make sure you also go out of your way to um what's that word called to leave a comment as well if you can a review what people say in chat yeah big up Koyla, big up renzo big up dr oj said devious a legend yeah yeah devious is a legend but he's in prison for some very very sketchy allegations don't google why he's in prison or why he's in prison for but yeah devious was worst interview i ever had i think it was like 15 minutes he was very um he was very um he wasn't very up he wasn't really open 
which was weird because over DMs and stuff, he was fine. And as soon as we met in person, I was in his car and he was like, just not about it. And he kind of, kind of froze up. But Joshua Souls was lovely. That accent's mad, but he was absolutely, he's, he was the nicest one out of all of them. And Young Spray, actually, oddly enough. Young Spray was really cool too. Um, I've always been a big Young Spray fan. So it's nice to see Young Spray um, doing what he's doing now with his podcast, absolutely blowing up. Every week I see clips of Young Spray going viral for saying some crazy thing on his podcast. Like that guy's legitimately funny. So big up Young Spray, big up DVS, big up Joshua Souls. Those guys are kind of, grew up on back in the day um anyway continuing on for that i want to quickly mention this so today i went to I, I went to this bar to go take part in this um open dex thing right there's a spy near where i live called studio 92 90 studio 92 94 it's also next to another bar called number 90 i actually get it up on here so you can just see what it looks like right number 90 yeah there we go number 90 bar right number 90 hackney wick so i went to this bar earlier to go take part in this open dex thing so they got this open dex event or competition that they're doing where essentially if you play at this open decks event you get the opportunity to maybe have a chance to play at this bar's eighth birthday party now if you don't know about open decks they're basically the equivalent of an open mic for a dj so you go there the premises that you play you get to play on on good equipment club equipment you get to play in front of a crowd maybe you bring your own crowd and the idea or the premise behind it is that maybe the bar manager the booker will hear you play and think oh my god this guy's the next steve aoki this guy's the next martin garrix this guy's the next dj harvey he's the next seth truxler he's the next jamie jones we have to book him immediately make this kid a star put him everywhere that's the hope right that is the internal hope that you have that that's going to happen obviously it doesn't happen that way it's a bit more complex um it's a bit more nuanced but that is obviously the hope that you have that that's going to happen so that was occurring um, oh my cpu usage is going crazy right now 63 percent cpu usage that's a bit too high in it uh, maybe i should just turn off the thing let me just turn off this actually it's going a bit too crazy let me turn this off let's see if this works let's see if this works because the cpu just i'm just checking my screen now it says 64 percent i'm like no 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 i'm usually on the 20s this can't run let's see if it goes down 57 62 Come on, brother, 61. Okay, it's going down little by little now. 62 still. <laughs> you gotta love it, 60. Okay, it's going down incrementally. There we go, settling now, 56. Come on, brother, come on. Give me give me a nice 40, give me a nice four zero. Give me a cuatro, come on. There we go, 38, yeah, it's dipping now, okay. It's dipping. There we go, it's back to 30. So there should be no more st stopping and starting. Okay, let's just continue okay let's continue so i went to this open decks thing at the number 90 bar um which is near where i live in basically hackneywick area which I'm, I'm i'm around that sort of area and they have this event coming up for the eighth birthday party i think ninth eighth one of them where essentially you get a chance to play on that lineup if you impress some of the people who run the space or who are going to be booking the event and obviously the premise around open decks is the same thing with open mics in that you get the promise or there's this idea that if you play and you impress people that you're playing at a bar you get a chance to play and it's also a chance to play anywhere on the equipment but for whatever reason maybe it's my ego because i accept that maybe it's my ego but it is weirdly a very dehumanizing occupation 
or maybe it's always been like that maybe open mics are inherently like that too because in open mics usually it's bars that aren't really busy because you know busy bars don't bother with open mics because they're busy all the time but if your bar isn't busy an open mic is an easy way to kind of get punters in because the hope is that the people that are performing are going to bring friends to come and see them perform or they might just be really good and they might just you know have a fan base that just comes to check them out regardless but um so essentially that's kind of so you're, you're always going to bars that are like not busy don't get me wrong number 90 is popping it's got a club it's got a restaurant a bar and stuff it does its thing it's on the flipping next to the canal people love it and whatnot but on like a random friday before 11 p.m there's probably not a lot going on in there so they want to get people in there to fill it up so initially you're kind of always looked at as a and of course you're coming for free there isn't really that respect of like you know of you being a performer in that regard you're kind of basically there to provide free entertainment but just the whole process about it, of like signing up and doing this thing is annoying. And today I kind of got a little bit in my head, but also, you know, I think I got there and I was a little bit just annoyed of being around so many hipsters and my allergies just flared up. But essentially I got there on time. I got there, you know, 10 minutes before six. They said get there before six to kind of get your name on the list. I was one of the first people there, maybe second or third. I was sitting there waiting to get flipping seen. And then, I don't know, I guess the people who are organising it have their own friends they're looking after and they put them down the list first and by the time they come around to me to put them on the list, there's only late list, there's only late slots left. So like from 8.30 onwards. And I'm thinking, so I have to sit here until 8.30 to wait to play for 45 minutes for a chance to be selected to play at this 8th birthday party, right? Or just to, just to play just in general, just to kind of, you know, get out there because I haven't DJed in a while. And I was like, this is really crap. This is really dehumanising and I just feel like shit. So I'm just going to go. So I said, you know what, just take my name on the list. I'm just going to bounce and even take my name on this issue. You know, he was standing there. He was talking to some other guy, saw me standing there, give me the look, continue talking. I'm just like, oh, a part of me just went into rage. Like, oi, like, I'm, can't you see me standing here? But I didn't want to say anything. I didn't want to get too over my top. I didn't want to start acting like the angry black guy. So I just kind of, you know, sucked in my rage and just, you know, let the disrespect continue. Then as soon as he turned around, I said, hey, can you take my name off the list? Take my name off the list. And then I kind of went on my merry way, got on my little fixed gear bike and cycled home angry. <laughs> right? But I was just thinking about it, thinking in general, like, the whole system around like going from because i keep fingering fingering oh my god i'm not fingering myself but i keep thinking about it because i was speaking to somebody in berlin about it the other day and just having a conversation around djing in general and just saying like how it might be the lowest form of entertainment on the kind of entertainment ladder but for whatever reason people that do it have a real big ego especially people that run clubs people that dj themselves but it's also even though it's on the lowest rung of the entertainment ladder it's also one of the hardest things to get into. No, sort of one of the hardest things to make it in. Not to get into, because you can buy a MIDI controller, you can basically download Virtual DJ for free, and essentially you're a DJ. Even There's even phone apps you can use now. So to get in it, it's not hard. The, the buyer of entry is really low, which is nice, because everyone gets the opportunity to play. But the issue that I have with it is that it's very difficult to go from being a bedroom guy to suddenly playing in a club like to be a bedroom DJ to going in a club the path is like just littered with minds it's just incredibly hard to figure it out and there's no real one way to do it everyone's got different ways you read interviews of certain artists some people blow up within a year some people takes 10 years some people takes 12 some people's a production some people's a chance encounter some people is because they were a drug dealer some people whatever it, it, some people they fuck their way up to the top it's whatever everything's different it's all different for every single person and it's hard to kind of figure out what the way is to go and then the, the options that are available at the moment are just crap like open dj things are terrible for the most part they're at bars that you don't really care about 
they're at times of day that no one's going to be there anyway. The organization behind them is pretty shit. And it's just, you know, it maybe makes you feel a little bit like, it kind of reminds you where you're at when you're dead, right? It kind of kind of humbles you in a little bit like, Jesus, man, I've got a long way to go before I'm flipping Seth Troxler out here. Do you know what I mean? It's a real, 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 real slug. So I, I was kind of thinking about it on my own. I was like, Jesus, man, that's probably one of the things I've kind of got in my head when I'm thinking of, okay, my real like kind of long-term goal, because I've, you know, I've, I've kind of flirted with the idea of opening an agency. I've flirted with the idea of having a brand, having a magazine, all these things I've kind of interested in. But I think my real long-term goal and something I'm going to try and aim for is definitely one day to open my own club, like for sure. Open my own nightclub is definitely one on my, especially now seeing what Joe Rogan's doing and how amazing that's probably going to end up being for him and his career and just the, you know, comedy community overall. Say what you want about the guy, but it's a pretty sick that he's been able to, you know, be in a position where he can basically, you know, blow his money and just open a club in the, you know, in the same flipping city he lives in and give his friends an opportunity to play whenever they want to. And he also gets a chance to play when he wants to. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. And it also just kind of, you know, you can do, you can kind of rewrite the wrongs of the industry. Forget all the selfishness of performing but if you have issues about the industry and about how things are done you can kind of fix them at your own place you'd hope so um that's what i'd hope anyway i i, I don't want to be the person like you know there's this common adage everyone has oh it's like um if i was around during flipping hitler's reign or the third reich or whatnot i would be the people that were freeing the jews and stuff when you know the reality is i think a lot of people like jordan peterson say no you would actually be one of the foot soldiers because you know we usually revert to type and for whatever reason like i said before like there's something about people in the electronic or dance music scene that when they make it they just turn into cunts now i don't know if they're always cunts anyway but they just do so I'm hoping I'm not one, I won't be one of those guys that when I have my own club that suddenly I get an ego, I'm walking around in one of those really skinny scarves and stuff, you know what I mean? I'm surrounded by, you know, 21 year old crystalline looking type girls. I hope that's not me. I hope I just do it properly. But that is the long-term goal that I've kind of got in my head now, especially after all this like nonsense that I've been facing, you know, in the beginning stages of what I'm trying to do because it's, it's kind of a bit self-inflicted on myself because I am doing it the long way if I wanted to kind of quicken the pace of how I'm going to try to get to where I want to get to and eventually play in the places I want to play, like the, fab, the you know, the fabrics, the folds, the Bergheims of this world, I should just be doing my own night. I should be starting my own, my own DJ, my own club night like I did previously. I should be getting into production, right? And trying to do it that way. That should be the way I should be really focusing myself. Like the, the, doing it the actual pure, I'm going to be a disc jockey way is incredibly difficult and very rarely people make it in that way. You have to kind of have those other tools in your arsenal about making a track, making a remix or having your own club night. But I still want to give it a shot. I still want to give it a shot this way and see how it kind of works out. And if it doesn't pan out, cool. But then when I eventually do open my own club, I will flip and fix this nonsense because it's just, I've had enough of it. Just, it's just terrible because all that stuff, even signing up for slots and stuff, it could have been done ages ago. It could have been done online. You didn't have to have the people kind of standing up again and writing the name down on paper. And then you get there early and you, you get flipping one of the last sets to play and just all of it is flipping annoying because also I didn't want to be the guy where I'm playing at 8.30 and then I go home and I come back. I want to, I want to like play. Last time I did an open decks thing, actually. Big up Brixton Jam, because they absolutely smashed it. Big up them. Let's say Brixton Jam open decks. I had to give them credit because I'm, I'm out here slating number 90. But big up Brixton Jam. They ran it properly. 
they organized it amazing they had somebody contacted via whatsapp it was all done like in a somewhat respectable manner that like, you didn't feel like you know so you, did, <laughs> you didn't feel like some pauper you know playing for your supper basically it was done really well and i also got a chance because you know i did pretty well at the flipping um you know open decks they also invited me to play at one of their little club nights after the fact which was decent too so i got both i got opportunity to play for free and i got opportunity to play and i got a bit of money in my pocket right i think it was like i don't know 50 pills or something whatever it was like it was just a nice thing to have no problem but in the end i'm definitely gonna go forward to fix it man because i've I just i've had enough i just had enough man i was literally on my bike like riding home like mm. i was there at 5 10 5 50 now i have to play at 8 30 what the fuck is this this is annoying all these dumb hipsters surrounding me people keep asking me if i want to drink i don't want to drink it's like oh, i was just like getting in my feels so i'm a fix that i'm a fix that i am People saying in the chat, what's Fred again done? Fred again's done too much, man. We're gonna talk about it in a minute, but Fred again is—he's he, not done anything except exist. But you know, you know how people are on the internet. Um, once they, once they, um, people pick and choose their villains, right? There are there are genuine villains out there, but some people just get you know chosen as a villain because there may be an easy punching bag. But we'll get to that soon. So one thing to jump on quickly is this: I wanna, I wanna know because again, I'm I'm a former unapologetic Joe Budden podcast fan. I jumped off of it and I'm not a fan anymore because of how he treated Rory and Moore. I took that shit personally because like an idiot and like a real fan, I was really invested in that podcast. I loved it. I listened to it all the time. It got me through some hard, hard times, especially back in the day when I was working terrible jobs and I wanted to just zone out and not be present. I'd put the flipping podcast on it. It would literally transport me to wherever they were, you know, their lingo, talking about things in their area, their little inside jokes, their relationships, their friendships, their, you know, their combat sometimes the debates on culture all of it was awesome to see and, it, and just different ideas on how they present themselves in terms of manhood was all kind of important too in that regard the messy stuff and all the other stuff i wasn't really a fan of but i loved the podcast i did really did so when they all fell out or when joe you know did what joe does and basically turned people around him against him it just turned me off the entire pod and because joe button's an you know an integral part of the pod and a really loud voice it's just hard to listen to him again knowing how he treats his friends you know what i mean it was just like okay i can't fuck with this especially at the time when i was listening to the podcast joe button was really on this kind of creators creator thing championing the creators championing people coming up and stuff talking about empowering people to know their to know their value um you know to fight for something to fight for their worth and whatnot um literacy and contracts all this sort of stuff and at the heart of it the breakup between Rory Moore and Joe was essentially centered around money and ownership and feeling valued and all that sort of stuff. So again, we don't know the exact details because it's all kind of messy, but that was kind of, kind of the genesis of the issue that they had and they eventually broke up. So it's kind of hard to see that one person that you looked at and thought, oh, you're championing this stuff and then you end up treating your friends like crap. It's just difficult. So I haven't listened to it, a full episode of the Joe Butter podcast ever since they broke up. Like that last one where Joe's ranting at the empty chair, that's the last time that I listened to a full episode i haven't listened to a single one since but i see clips and stuff around and of course joe Budden's like an you know is an expert like you know elite world champion champions league level content creator and just voice in general so even if you don't listen to his podcast you'll hear what he has to say because he always goes viral so one of the comments that he made was regarding logic 
Joe Biden and Logic have got like a long-standing beef simply because Joe Biden thinks Logic sucks, right? He doesn't rate him as a rapper, doesn't appreciate him. Logic obviously didn't react too well to somebody saying he's terrible. Somebody, especially somebody prominent who's very well known and respected in the industry, took it didn't take it too well, and they've had a kind of a going on back and forth. Logic on his own side has kind of you know flirted with retirement and stuff, and you know his place in hip-hop and you know the the kind of conversation around his ethnicity with him being biracial and all this sort of stuff whatever it's messy but still um he's got his he's got his fan base joe brown's got his recently joe logic decided to flip into a cover of a really you know legendary ice ice cube track a, a track that i think has got a special place in every people's hearts and because logic isn't the most well-liked person in hip-hop hip-hop which you kept with the capital h's people didn't take to it too kindly but Joe Biden in particular was really offended by Logic's rendition of Ice Cube's Today Was A Good Day that he went on his podcast and said the following. Like, this is how badly he took it. Like, he was really offended that Logic did this cover and he told him essentially that he needs to quit rapping and join him in retirement. So here's Joe Budden talking about it now on his podcast. Logic. <laughs> you know, I hate to continue to make a career at your expense. I don't hate it. Actually, <laughs> I'm glad that I have a little list of you that I get to. <laughs> That's horrible to say. One day I'm going to grow up. Logic, I beg of you. I'm pleading with you. Please join me in retirement. Never step near a recording device again. Throw your phone in the ocean. Be allergic to microphones. Mm. Promise your fans nothing. Don't go to the studio ever again. You are the worst, yo. You are really, really bad. And then when we think he can't get any worse, you have the bright idea of doing an ice cube flip. So, yeah, so clearly he didn't like it. A little clip of the ice cube clip playing now. Just waking up in the morning, gotta thank God. I don't know, but today seems kinda odd. No barker from the dog, no smalls. Mama cooked a breakfast with no heart. Now, maybe I'm in the minority here, and again, I'm not the biggest Logic fan. People say it's corny, whatever it may be. But I don't think this track warrants the reaction from Joe Budden. I know maybe it's more to do with the tr original track. With Ice Cube's Today Was A Good Day being what it is and what it means to culture, maybe it's the fact that someone covered it. That's a real offense. People are like, no, this is sacred. You can't just be covering. It's like going to cover a Lauryn Hill record if you're an R&B artist nowadays. You know I mean, you're going to get booed out of the room regardless of who you are. But I don't think it's as bad as he's trying to make it seem as, in my opinion. You know, like it's a bit corny. It's a bit lame. It probably didn't need to be shared. <laughs> that's what said. But now it has been shared. Is it really the height of like rubbish art? Is it really the, the thing that's going to uh, tell people that, you know, the art form or, art, you know, hip hop in general is on its last legs and these kids don't know what they're doing and they're not respecting the craft and blah, blah, blah. Does it warrant that? I don't think so, personally. It really, I don't think warrants that. But I think what's happening here for me, the reaction or the feeling that I get from this is as follows. 
I just get the feeling with Joe Budden, especially being a fan of his and kind of seeing how he's kind of, you know, navigated this industry and, you know, being somewhat familiar with his old music, but never really a fan of his music. I kind of was a fan of the guy's podcast and him as a personality as opposed to the music. But from the stuff that I have heard of him or the music, it's not the greatest, right? He's known for his classic or hit record, Pump It Up, which is essentially, you can say, the corniest record of all time. It's always kind of played in jest. It's sort of like the, I, I think Pump Me Up is, sorry, Pump uh, <laughs> me up is <laughs> probably like the black version of Rick Rolled, right? Um, it's the black version of that. It's like people play it just to kind of laugh at. It's not really played as like, oh, this is a slapper. It's kind of played in sort of like irony in the kind of way. And I, what I feel like is happening with Joe Budden is that I feel like he's suffering from like this thing where he when he was coming up in hip-hop it wasn't cool to be corny or you couldn't navigate the industry and be successful being corny and corny not just being lame i guess corny just like embracing who you actually are and not trying to kind of play up to this idea of being some sort of fug or a gangster or whatnot and just being okay in your kind of skin i think it was kind of looked down upon and obviously you know you had to kind of act a certain way and it makes sense to me because there's this famous story that Joe Budden shares of why he hates Tyler, the creator. And he hates Tyler, the creator, because I think one time Joe was performing, I think I like the Roots Picnic or something, one of these kind of hip hop festivals. And they booked um, Odd Future. This was when they first blew up, when Tyler, the creator used to like draw over his vans and stuff, right? And cut off his flipping chinos and El Sweatshirt was around. And they were going crazy. They'd go to festivals and just be running around acting like kids and just, you know, being brats. And I guess Joe Budden must have interacted with them behind the scenes or in the green room or behind whatever it may be and just didn't like their vibe and kind of, you know, was kind of sworn off at them ever since. But I also think part of me, in that moment, when you saw Tyler, when you saw Earl, when you saw Jasper, um, when you saw, you know, um, Taco and all these kind of guys being unapologetically, unapologetically themselves, black kids kind of, you know, just doing what they're doing it kind of maybe irked him that he was never given that grace and that ability to kind of be who he wanted to be like super emotional, you know, involved in women's business, really messy kind of rapper type of guy. And then later on in life, someone like a Drake essentially um, used his same kind of blueprint, his same kind of as approach to music and using it like as like an open diary, very therapeutic level and became one of the biggest stars in the world. So even Joe Budden's weird relationship with Drake is somewhat explainable in that regard. So I think that's what's going on here. I think Drake just sees logic and thinks hold on first of all logic is a terrible rapper compared to joe budden but he's able to survive and thrive in music despite making very you know what you'd say crappy songs and joe was never given that grace like he made one really bad commercial corny song and his whole discography has been dismissed because of that one song right pump it up basically you know personifies joe budden but he's got a whole slew of other records that he's done that maybe represent him much better than pump it up do but people just keep looking at that and don't look at the other stuff so i think that's where that kind of hate comes from when it sort of comes to logic is that aspect of it it's like he's really terrible compared to him and he gets the ability to make terrible music and still thrive because nowadays you know some kids just identify with logic's journey they like what he says they grew up on him whatever it may be don't question the fans they like him they like what he puts out and it is what it is but i generally don't think that ice cube cover was that bad to warrant somebody saying to you go into retirement it maybe would warrant saying hey don't ever release something like this again don't cover a legendary track like this again but does it re require retirement i don't think so but then again joe budden was retired by the industry he didn't retire willingly 
obviously the podcast helped to kind of soften the blow but the industry basically retired him by kind of reminding him every time that you know you're not selling records you're not selling out certain places venues and whatnot and you know the, i remember uh, i remember mal from rory mal saying once like a really cutting remark like you know the only time he really became successful, Joe Budden, and he actually was selling out places was because of the podcast. He never got that kind of love or depreciation when he was an artist, even people he spoke to. Like, you know, because his podcast became a real cultural touch point, certain artists that would have never spoken to Joe before were now speaking to him because he had a really popping podcast that could kind of elevate your career and whatnot. So that whole kind of plays into it. So I saw this, I was like, you know what, this is all a little bit unfair. And I think they're kind of stepping on, you know, um, logic just because for the most part he just feels like you know he couldn't get away with what logic did when he was coming up in industry that's just my general opinion on that one and then we have this interesting article courtesy of the new york times that really irked me just more so because of the title and i think i was going to cover it in another live stream but i'll cover it today in the podcast and the title of the new york Times article is this would you date a podcast bro their reputations have caught up with them by a writer called gina severus and essentially it's a hit piece on people like myself um guys who decide to buy a microphone rant into it and share our thoughts and feelings with the world but obviously it's also kind of a hit piece at those more what you'd say divisive types like the andrew tates and the fresh and fits and all these other guys in the sort of manosphere space who essentially try to inform inspire and maybe direct young men and for whatever reason the society we live in at the moment looks at young men as like you know um little mini isis soldiers or mujahideen or flipping you know um taliban or i don't know syracuse i don't know what people think people would podcasters do but for whatever reason society has deemed them to be the most dangerous people in the world like that's why i said you know kind of you know with my tongue firmly planted in my cheek that that video of those kids sitting in a cafe and the car crashes into the window that is obviously a to me a the time um a representation of podcasting being the most dangerous job in the world but it clearly is because you know you could say you could say a little off-handed comment on the podcast it gets clipped and shared on social media and suddenly people are destroying you or basically you know judging you of that one little soundbite without any sort of context so it can really make or break your career i understand that but i just feel like the premise of this is really annoying because initially in the title it says podcast bro as if this affliction only affects men and i think podcasting in general especially the the more like um uh the more questionable side of things where, where people just go in and just say anything it affects both sides of the of the gender aisle like it's not discriminatory in that way if you put a microphone or a camera in front of anybody and you give them the opportunity to say what they actually want to say eventually they're going to fumble over what they're saying and say some nonsense it just is what it is and i've seen many clips online of women getting on podcasts and saying the most d dumbest things i've ever heard in my entire life but you let people rock because guess what podcasts are all subjective you know you can listen to what you want to listen to you can turn it off it's not that big of a deal but you know this article goes out of its way to kind of make it look like it's just a male problem which is absolutely annoying anyway we continue let's read the article so it says tizan robertson a student from california state university northbridge was approaching one year of an on again off again dating with a co-worker when she came to the realization she would eventually announce to her followers on twitter my biggest mistake in life so far was dating a man with a podcast miss robertson 24 began seeing him in december 2021 she was he was 35 at the time and had dreams of being a social media influencer she recalled they both worked at amazon warehouse near um, their home in lancaster california their situationship as she aptly called it was very embarrassing but she continued to date him until january of this year it's funny that you use the term situationship to describe basically you know 
um, hooking up with somebody casually, um, a term that was coined from podcast. And it's also funny, the judgment that people have with this, right? This lady or this person is dating somebody who they were both, you know, at the same level in terms of what they were doing occupation-wise, working in Amazon Warehouse. But because he had a podcast, suddenly you're much better than him when you're both working at the same place. It's absolutely insane. It continues. I knew he had a podcast, but I never listened to it. I was like, okay, I like this man. I'm already ignoring his social media presence. I'm just going to forget he had a podcast. Things were fine when they were together as long as Mr. Robertson didn't think about his extra curriculums until one day he sent her a link to his show inviting her to listen and share her thoughts. What she heard turned her off. That's the mistake that he made. I don't think in my entire time I've ever personally messaged anybody to listen to my show. It's already embarrassing enough having a podcast, right? It's kind of lame. It's kind of corny. It's already embarrassing enough sharing links to it online. Kind of lame, kind of corny. It's already embarrassing clipping stuff and listening to yourself speak and getting rid of the and R's and editing this and designing a thumbnail, sharing stuff on social media. That's already bad enough as it is. The last thing I want to do is send somebody a direct link and tell them what their thoughts are. And fundamentally, not to be that guy, but I don't care what people's thoughts are. Like, this is part of the reason why this stuff works. I think the genesis for me, especially the early days of listening to Joe Rogan back in the day when it first started, when he was like, doing it on a couch, why that stuff was special was because they were uninformed and just shooting from the hip. The moment you start asking for feedback and you start asking for direction on how you should approach certain things, I think it kind of loses its magic. For better or worse, just present who you are on front you know, of the camera or in front of the microphone. If people like it, they like it. If they don't, they don't. But it shouldn't be, you know, a thing where you're trying to like, you know, get feedback and this and that. It's just weird. It's just honestly weird. And it's also a thing of like, I wouldn't, I hate kind of like invading somebody's time and basically take, you know, basically trying to um, put, them, put them in a position where they have to review it. Like kind of, you know, cannibalizing their time. It's just a bit annoying that way. I just, I've never liked that sort of stuff personally. But again, I come from the world of promoting, you know, at clubs and stuff. So I think because I was never the guy to say, hey, come to my club night, I'm also not going to be the guy who's going to be like, hey, listen to my podcast. It's like, whatever. It continues. Mr. Robertson, it was... Um for Miss Robinson, sorry, it wasn't just the content of the man's podcast, but he had, but no, sorry, let's continue again. For Mr. For Miss Roberts, why keep so? Why I say Roberts? So it's Roberts. For Miss Robertson, it was just it wasn't just the content of the man's podcast, but that he had one at all. Like many other women, she associates the form with a certain kind of man, one who is endlessly fascinated by his own opinions, <laughs> loves the sound of his own voice, and isn't the least bit shy about offering unsolicited opinions on masculinity, sexuality, and women. Many women have taken to social media to mock just the kind of programming and the men who made it. I've always, just to be certain, I've always had an issue anyway with a certain subject of podcast or content that exists out there, especially within the black community that is obsessed with sex, um, masculinity, women, relationship stuff. Like, it's just annoying. They speak about the same thing. Like, I've heard the topic around who should be paying for the first date so often that legitimately I might game of thrones myself you know what I mean walk out the window just go you know whatever will be will be it's just too much and they just keep regurgitating it but for whatever reason those podcasts do numbers they're successful so clearly there's a market for it but for me personally I hate it and I think it's horrible and it applies and now it's, it's become like a widespread thing so it's not just a black thing like white podcasts whatever they are you know there's a tired podcast on barstool sports that just center and just girls sitting around talking about dating for like you know 400 episodes plus it's like how much of this can one person take but regardless it is what it is but 
I find the idea that this is how you encapsulate all guys that have podcasts really annoying because essentially I feel like having one anywhere podcast you have to be somewhat intrinsically curious you have to be somewhat fascinated by humanity by society by technology by culture because you want to talk about things you see stuff you recognize patterns and trends you may be able to link certain things together and you can speak about them you're not just sitting it's just okay today i had a date i tried to finger blast this girl in the kitchen she said no and then i went back on tinder you're not just speaking about that you're like maybe speaking about things that you spoke about in the conversation maybe stuff you saw in the papers maybe something you overheard that's where good ones come across and i really do kind of um detest this idea that it's all just you know fast by your own opinions not really you're maybe fascinated with other people's opinions and how that may inform yours but it's not just a solely just okay i'm gonna just spout off the hip and just oh it's just all me all me that's nonsense it continues on tiktok hashtags like men with podcasts gather videos of mostly women using a beard filter to shout at the right sorts of things male podcast hosts say such as why a man why as a man you're born the mouth well why as a man are you born in the month of February? Or that's the problem with women who read. Others have called on them to put their mics down and get a job. But the once booming podcast industry is currently back on foot. The host's reputation for self-important mansplaining, having long since caught up with them, is the podcast bro officially a person non grata today's dating landscape. In my opinion, this whole thing of like women doing this thing with a beard thing, I think it's really funny. There's one girl in particular who does it amazing, this black girl who kind of does these like satirical spins and skits on guys that have podcasts and she smashes it. If you know what I'm talking about, you know it. I think her her character, that's the, the guy, he's got like a bald head and a beard and then she kind of has this conversation on the podcast and then she plays like a... a like a woman pick me on the podcast where she kind of covers everything the guys are saying is super hilarious but i think this is really all founded or it's on the kind of foundation of bullshit because essentially this is a dating thing most of these people who are complaining especially the women i understand where it's coming from because there's a certain type of it's maybe like a fuckboy type of person who maybe speaks about these certain topics about women about relationship that has podcasts and maybe it's a bit of a turnoff but fundamentally let's not also go away from the fact of if most of these guys who are doing these pods that are very kind of divisive and kind of put down certain genders and certain people and whatnot if they were successful as joe rogan if they made millions and millions and just talking into a microphone a lot of these people's opinions will can definitely change i feel like a lot of it has to do with this kind of not meme it's kind of this um it's kind of this caricature they have in their head of a guy who's got a podcast who sleeps on the mattress on the floor with a tv and a controller who doesn't have any cutlery who eats on paper plates and you know that kind of dude who doesn't have a job whatever maybe and just records a podcast with 10 listeners that's the thing they have but I think the conversation changes immediately if that person's successful. It kind of shifts the whole thing, which then, you know, negates the entire argument because now you're saying if your podcast is popping and it makes you money, I can forgive stuff. But if it's not, then suddenly I'm judging you because of it, um, which I think is absolute bullshit. But it continues. In interviews in a handful of men who work or have worked on podcasting, some have said um, they've had come across romantic prospects who view their profession as a potential red flag. And even among those who haven't, some preemptively adjust their representation of themselves to make a clear distinction. And it's funny that they say that because I remember once a particular girl that I was trying to see early, early on, maybe many, many years ago, 
um, didn't want to speak to anymore because she found out that I was a fan of Jordan Peterson. Before Jordan Peterson went crazy off the benzos and all that malarkey and started to think his shit don't stink and was shouting at, you know, fat girls for having the for having the flipping nerve to wear bikinis and stuff and he just went off the reservation. Now Jordan Peterson is a caricature of himself and it's really sad to see what he's kinda of turned into. But I was a fan of his before. When Twelve Rules for Life came out, you know, I went to the I went to a flipping um I went to a talk he did somewhere in London. I forgot where it was specific. I think it was like a round theater or something. I think the name of it. And it was great. And around that time, he was doing loads of videos on online, on YouTube that were going viral. And people were really loving it. His interviews were going crazy. He had an interview with that woman on Channel 4 that she was, you know, whatever. That back and forth they had was really good, blah, blah, blah. And I was a fan of it. And I guess I was sharing a lot of the stuff online because, you know, when you first discover Jordan Peterson for the first time and you're one of the first people to discover and you're sharing the stuff online and you're still lecturing back in the day, you feel kind of like, I'm not going to some way to share it. Little did I know, there was a whole community of people who had a complete opposite opinion of me, who did not like him at all, thought he was dangerous, thought he was um, going to, you know, negatively affect culture and whatnot. And they were very vocal about it. So when this girl found out I did, I liked Jordan Peterson, she basically read, you know, wrote me a massive sort of paragraph, basically detailing why she didn't like it. And I think I replied back about something, something along the lines of, oh, you should be open to different conversations and stuff. And that's when I found out, about the culture war through that conversation because she just didn't want to listen. She just wasn't having it. There was no like two sides of the argument. It's this guy's wrong. He's bad for society. I'm cutting you off. Don't ever talk to me again. And since then, you know, it's not been, it's not been good. Right. Let's just say I may be blocked. <laughs> so um, that kind of taught me or that kind of showed me, Oh, this did like, I didn't know this existed. I thought in general, if you didn't like something, you just didn't listen to it, but it didn't inform your decision of like who you hooked up with or who you saw, because it's just such a non important. It's just such an unimportant thing. Like if you don't like, I don't know if you don't like Jay-Z or something, right? What, what, you're not going to date somebody. It's just, it just didn't make any sense to me why that would be a defining part as opposed to whether or not you have compatibility, whether or not you get on, but Hey, everyone has the decision. Everyone's fine with their choices. It is what it is. I can understand how annoying that may be in that regard, but I just find the idea of judging anybody based on what they listen to or what they read or what they watch very bizarre in my, I just find it incredibly bizarre, incredibly so. It continues. Tyree Rush, a 29-year-old podcast producer in Atlanta, said he makes it a point not to list his profession on his dating app profiles. Instead, he usually works, says he works in digital media. I was on a date in Chicago and I said that I had to do this digital strategy at first. So she kept pressing and was like, actually, I produce podcasts. Now maybe it's because I lied and said that I did digital strategy first and that she was not onto it. But I just think when she heard the podcast, it was a cause of concern for her. Maybe it should be. Maybe women should, you know, if you see a microphone, if you see a Rode microphone and a Focusrite, you know, audio interface, maybe you should run a mile, depending. There should be, red flags maybe should exist in dating, of course, certain things. But I just, there's a part of me that just thinks like just because someone records their voice, you know, and shares it to people or records clips and does videos online, I just find that weird. But maybe the stigma around it is the same sort of stigma with DJing and being a photographer, right? Some people, I'm, I guess there's some women out there think if you're a photographer, especially fashion photographer, you're a creep. If you're a DJ, you know, it's looks like a bit corny, especially if you're not, again, and I think a lot of it, just think about it now, has to do with their success level. Because if, if you're a photographer taking pictures of local fots and baddies and babes in ends and just sharing them on your Instagram account, it's not the same thing, right? Everyone looks at it like, oh, that's trashy, that's crap, you're a creep. But if you're 
taking pictures of like Lily Rose Depp and shit and you're taking pictures at, behind the scenes at London Fashion Week, suddenly you're a man of culture. Suddenly you're, you've got a little bit more of a panache on the end of your name and whatnot. It just depends on your success level and what you're doing it as. Um, but anyway, I would never list my occupation as a fucking podcast or a DJ. I mean, that's not, it's just, just insane to me. Anyway, you have to have a bit of self-respect for yourself. It continues. Screen of the podcast bro archetype has also appeared in other areas of pop culture and Netflix comedy. You people, Ezra, a white broker played by Jonah Hill, reveals to his date that his dream job is to do hip hop culture podcast full time, which is first met with laughter, followed by quickly judgment and concern. Miss Rush also worked in Marvel, iHeartMedia and the podcast network Wondery and said he understood the wariness. It's like a new chivalry of etiquette that we're just trying to figure out. Logan Mendoza's 23 is one of the hosts of the Sweet Talk a video podcast on YouTube and he said they often get direct messages from men who enjoy their content which he described mostly as guy talk and debate he said that he didn't consider sweet talk to be like um, some of the more offensive shows at the end of the day you want to entertain the listeners and viewers so you do that um, so you're going to have to say some crazy stuff Miss Mendoza says sometimes we'll say some stuff but we don't really fall in line with it sometimes we'll disagree on topic just to have that argument with each other on the podcast and have different point of views I've never liked that I've never liked just being a contrarian just to kind of get views and clicks and whatever it may be I think that's one of the reasons also that kind of turned me off the job on a podcast because they just would or Joe would just you know just for the sake of argument and creating content will just be a contrarian and will just kind of you know argue the other side and whatnot just to kind of you know get the other guys to debate it more i don't think that's necessary i think the whole point of a podcast because it's long form and because you're not really edited you don't have any people giving you notes you can be a bit more free of what you say and just kind of lay it bare why would you then decide to kind of artificially create this tension where that doesn't need to be there say what you feel feel what you mean and then kind of go from there Another person, Raymond Pagg, a 31-year-old podcaster producer and a sound designer who works mostly on science shows, said he never personally experienced romantic rejection because of his profession. In fact, he said it was often a point of entry of the conversation. Yeah, because you do a scientific podcast. So you see a difference. This kid does a scientific podcast, right? Um, NPR type thing, a documentary type thing, inquisitive, insightful, learning, the kind of thing you share on your Instagram stories because you want people to double tap heart, you know, on it or whatnot. But he's not talking about, you know, messy stuff. He's not talking about who's dating who. Because of that, it's more value because obviously it makes him look intelligent. It makes him look cultured. It makes him look worldly, whatever. About a month ago, he started seeing someone new, but while he was single, he presented himself as an audio producer, as somebody who has also worked on radio, he felt the audio label encompassed both jobs. I feel like I've been able to position myself away from the terrible man corner of podcasting. He said, oh, he's one of those guys, eh? Man corner. Aren't you a man? Like, what are you talking about? Um, Mr. Pag said he didn't know many people who'd work in audio who will call themselves podcasters, though, and given an appealing idea, anybody in the podcaster. It could be mean that you work in American life or that it could mean that you've recorded podcasts with a bunch of your friends, talk about the latest news of the week. Um or let them socialistic stuff. Okay, it's one of those dudes. But anyway, another thing I'll quickly mention too, this also made me think, the, the, the first time I heard this phrase ever uttered, you know who I heard it uttered from? You know who I heard it uttered from the first time ever? From this woman. Um, and I think ever since then, right? Ever since then, I've never been a fan of her work ever since. This artist called Japanese Breakfast. 
um, and she appeared on How Long Gone, one of my favorite podcasts. And she was a real B-I-T-C-H, I felt like, to the boys. Now, don't get me wrong. Chris Brack is specifically on that podcast is a guy that is kind of, you know, you kind of have to learn to love him. He's an acquired taste, a contrarian, um, just somebody that has some really insane opinions, um, doesn't necessarily like to be inquisitive about certain things, then gets balls deep in certain things. Just a really hard guy to kind of like. But, you know, if you like him, you like him. If you don't, you don't. But I get it. But still, she was very dismissive of the podcast, even though she was doing it to kind of promote her new album and just was acting just really weird in general. I didn't like it. And she uttered the term around podcast bro, and all this sort of stuff a lot. And I think, you know, she had this really, I think she mentioned something about her boyfriend maybe being one too. Or, I don't know. It was just weird. I didn't like it. And oddly enough, because I say all that what I've said about myself and maybe how I find the idea of women not dating certain guys because their podcast really idiot, really dumb. But oddly enough, I have to also confess I was a fan of her music beforehand. And again, you know, for the most part, I try not to read artist interviews because I feel like sometimes you read an artist interview and they come across like a cunt and you're like, I can't listen to her anymore. So I try to avoid it. But because I was a big How Long Gone fan, I just auto played the podcast, just listened to it. But since then, I have never listened to her music again since she said what she said about podcast bros and she just came across dismissive didn't really and i think even she didn't even share that she was on the podcast on the social media i'm pretty sure i was being a bit petty and i kept checking her socials she didn't share that she was on there she just completely just pretended like it didn't happen kind of thing and i took that i took that personally as michael jordan will say and i haven't listened to her ever since so i can somewhat understand these girls who are like you know what if you've got a podcast if you've got a road mic at home and you're ranting and raving about Sweetie or, you know, JT and P. Diddy and stuff, or you have some insane opinions about who should pay for the first date. I understand if you don't like it, but in general, I just feel like there's idiosity on both sides of the aisle. Men and women are just getting on these podcasts saying the most nonsense things just for attention, and it really is becoming um, a bit of a mad one, in my opinion. People's comments saying, oh, Jeffy Breakfast is a mid anyway. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Um, Uche is saying it's probably the same as Strife as dating a comedian because either situation in your personal life can and will be used as content in one way. Yeah, true. You know what, um, Uche? That I have more of a reason, that I have more understanding for. If somebody, especially a woman, said, hey, I just don't want to date a podcast because I don't want to end up being a conversation piece for a podcast of like, oh, we had an argument about the shower or we had an argument about who didn't wash the toilet or about who didn't buy this or something. I don't want to end up as one of those kind of bits and bits in your pod that I haven't that I have a lot of sympathy for, especially if it's like presented as like all the time. I'm the one in the wrong sort of thing. If you're a woman, I get it. That has more credence to it. But the idea that just because you have a microphone in front of your face that you just chat shit is crazy in my opinion, especially because, you know, some people just do podcasts, you know, sitting there just recording albums, not talking about anything personal at all. So I don't know. I find it odd. That being said, quickly went to mention about my podcast. I love the best. How long gone? I'm getting a little bit, a little bit annoyed about like the, it's not even payola. I'm not even annoyed. I don't know what the annoying comes from. And, and I wouldn't say it's projection because of what I'm doing and I want to be as successful as them or whatnot. I don't think so because I'm, uh, I'm able to do what I'm doing and also enjoy stuff without kind of viewing it from like, oh, that should be me. That's a really, you know, lame and R-worded way to look at things. But I love How Long Gone, the podcast. I love it. One of my favorite ones, go-to ones I listen to on a weekly basis. It comes out three times a week. It's produced really well. They have interesting guests and stuff and it's amazing. But it's also very much a 
niche podcast. It also operates a very particular type of niche where you kind of have to be into certain things to kind of get them and to kind of find out who they are and to be into the lingo and to understand the topics they're talking about, menswear, fashion, culture, music, restaurants, hospitality, bars, all that sort of stuff. It's really nuanced. So when you see all these press pieces about them online, it gets a little bit annoying and nauseating and it kind of feels like payola. And I know a lot of it comes from their guest, right? You go on How Long Gone Podcast and you check out some of their guests on the show, um, on their pod especially, and you'll see loads of like media figures or like writers and stuff. But people that essentially would get you loads of press in papers and in publications, which may explain why they seem to be getting all this flipping crazy, crazy PR everywhere. And then of course, they recently signed to CAA which I think is absolutely amazing. And I think they're going to, I think there's a, I think there's meant to be some sort of a TV production deal happening, right? And let me just quickly check it here. I think it's a deadline article that basically speaks about it. But as a fan, I love what they're doing and I appreciate it. And I'm a fan of it. And I was going to go to a live show in London, but I just got lazy and didn't go. And, you know, I'm not going to buy podcast merch because it's not my thing. But I just love what they do, everything about it. And again, like I said, CB is an acquired taste. And, you know, Dem Jeans, um, Jason Stewart is also somebody I'm a big fan of. But I just feel like the the the, 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 the kind of the press is getting a little bit nauseating. It feels like they're shoving it down our throats a little bit. And with it being, like I said, with it being a niche thing, interest-wise, I just don't believe the press matches the actual reach of the show. Like, they're making it seem as if, like, this is, like, you know, the, the I don't know, Joe Rogan for, like, millennials or something. And I just don't think that is the case. I know it's popular. I know it's got a flipping reach. But I don't think it's influencing culture as much as they're making it seem as. But obviously, you know, perception and narratives and stuff are really important. But this article is really caught in here regardless. It says, how long gone there's 500 episodes, cancer, culture, sorry, podcast, science of CAA, um, eyes, TV and film opportunities, which is pretty cool. Um, it says here, exclusive, the podcast, which is closing in on 500 episodes, um, having launched in the nascent stages of the pandemic, has signed with CAA. The move will also see um, the agency explore ex opportunities for uh, television and film, publishing for the pair who are currently talking, sorry, taking the show on the road with live shows in London. The full circle on the pair um, who have often joked about the podcast, about the desire to move into television and secure a list present representation. You could easily imagine a how long gone interview television series given the pair's controversial style, appealing to hipsters around the country and internationally. Um, early interviews included the likes of Jeremy O. Harris, um, Whitney Port, Jake Lacey, Lily Analock, Leonard Dunham, and they are followed up with the likes of Brett Easton Ellis and BJ Novak. By the way, Leonard Dunham, who I'm not usually a fan of, came across really well in this interview. If you haven't checked it out, definitely check it out. She came across really well, and I'm and I'm really a staunch Leonard Dunham hater, but she came across really nice. Um, Black previous sorry, Black previously managed a pop punk band cartel before becoming a fashion consultant for the likes of Tom Brown as well as a cultural writer. While Stewart, who often goes by the name Dem Jeans, previously played the likes of Steve Aoki and his noted foodie. Since launching the podcast in March 2020, they have released a how long on um, album on Jaguar Jaguar. Um, so uh, Jack Jack Jaguar, whatever it's called, and indie label, and performed live in a number of cities, including New York. Stewart lives in Glendale, California, and Black is resident of New York and Hollywood. Imagine that from podcasting, this this guy's got two cribs, bruv, smashing it. With much of their content, um, which comes for out three times a week, revolves around the hot restaurant openings in LA, prescription drug preferences, and sync opportunities for musicians. As independent creators in the audio space looking for expand our reach, we can rest easy knowing that the gaggle 
of deal makers at CAA are watching us nightly, and we've um, and we look forward to bringing our talents to the Century City," said Black and Stewart. So clearly, also an opportunity for them going forward, but it does kind of show you just how the industry actually works in it, because. Again, I listen to it all the time religiously, but I don't think from what I've seen online and conversation pieces and, you know, you don't see these guys clipped in certain places, whatever it may be. I just don't think the press matches how actually successful it is. But because of the guests they get on and most of them being journalists, most of them being writers, most of them being people within the somewhat, what do you call them? the media glitterati it kind of helps to sort of spread the message about what they're doing far and wide and make it seem like it's way bigger than what it actually is so this might be the actual the the, the way you have to do it nowadays the joe rogan approach of doing it beforehand just putting out loads of stuff and hoping that it kind of blows up is different it's kind of gone by the by for the most part now if you really want to go the extra mile and kind of pop mainstream you interview somebody that's controversial um you maybe interview people that got a lot of reach themselves and you hope that you can maybe tap into that kind of you know their kind of market it's kind of like what youtubers have been doing for ages where you sort of like try and collab with people who have bigger audiences or maybe a, an audience different to yours so you can maybe reach different people blah de, blah 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 but definitely check out how long gone if you haven't already it's definitely one of my favorite podcasts and i listen to it all the time Next on here to talk about quickly, we have to mention this. This is pretty stunning, isn't it? Regarding Kanye and Adidas, man. I think this is really, really interesting to see how this is playing out because you kind of get the feeling the Adidas executives are feeling a little bit regretful about pulling the trigger on Kanye, um, you know, on his flipping I love Hitler stances and all this other anti-Semitic stuff he was saying when he was going crazy um, a few months or what back or whatnot, especially now that the numbers have kind of been laid bare. So this is courtesy of Reuters. It says Adidas boss eyes turn around after Kanye West split. Um, it says here, Adidas will slash its 2022 dividend, the sportsmaker said in January in Wednesday, after warning a split with the artist formerly known as Kanye West could push it to its first annual loss in three decades this year. Chief Executive Bjorn Golden, speaking to investors for the first time since taking over the reins in January the 1st, pledged to build at Bru pledged to rebuild the Bruce brand after dealing with a fallout from ending Ada's partnership with West, who now goes by Ye, which yielded the lucrative Yeezy sneaker line. Adidas has not said how much the Yeezy brand has made since its first deal with Ye at the end of 2023, but analysts estimate it accounted for as much as 7% of total sales in its best years. Imagine, it only started in 2003, 2013, sorry, and it was nearly getting to, and I guess if he would have continued on, it probably would have accounted for 10% of Adidas's overall sales. And consider Adidas do more stuff than just originals. They've got performance gear, they've got kids line, they've got jerseys, um, many other things, I'm sure, even stuff like bottles and stuff that they kind of license and whatnot. 10% was all Yeezy. Insane. The company needs to refocus on its core business and faces a transition year before returning to profit in 2024 and will return to its sports-based roots, Golden said. You will see us invest in more sports because that is our DNA of this company, he told reporters. The company will recommend a dividend of 0.7 euros per share down from 3.3 euros a share in 2021 at a May 11 annual general meeting, it said. Ada shares recovered from last year's loss uh, to trade up to 1.6 by um, 3.30 GMT. They have outperformed rivals Puma and Nike and since the start of this year in a sign that investors back Gordon. We believe the shares um, fail to discount the time it will take to rebuild the brand and margins. But one of the biggest quotes to come from this was as follows, right? 
these quotes that I kind of pulled from Twitter. One of them saying as follows. Adidas projects first annual loss in 30 years after split with Kanye West. The company's projected to lose 738 million. 738 million for deciding that they couldn't, you know, weather the storm after Kanye went on Alex Jones donning the hardest Vetemon jacket you've ever seen and declaring that he loves Hitler and stuff. They couldn't weather that storm. They couldn't just let it pass and just think, you know what, let's just get the deal out of the way because I think that could have been done. I think an easier solution would have been that, hey, however long the deal is, put a statement out and say, we're going to honour the deal. We're going to get through this. We're going to do it. And then, But when it's done, it's done. That would have been a better way to do it than to cut off, to risk, to, to lose 738 million to appease people in the moment who probably don't wear Adidas or care for the brand anyway. It's crazy, especially when you consider the amount of people who got fired off the back of this. Think of the people who got fired. The CEO obviously left, but think of every other person. Person, you know, there was a, I remember there was an article um, about factories closing because those factories were originally only set up to meet demand of how successful Yeezy was. Obviously, all that blame could be laid at Ye's feet himself because he was a person that went on that tire to say what he said. But still, they were willing to lose $738 million in order to appear somewhat quote-unquote woke. I wouldn't say it was woke because Kanye did say some crazy stuff, but I just think in that moment, they could have been a little bit more patient and just said, hey, here's our statement. We're going to cut ties with him once our contract is over, but we're going to honour this deal and see it through. And, and you can even spin it like we're going to do it for the fans. We don't want to disappoint our many legion of fans out there who are waiting for this product. That could have been a way to do it. Then what they're going to do now, which is most likely burn everything. Imagine. So most likely after everything that's happened, you know, with this whole conversation around sustainability and global warming and stuff, they may be in a position where they might go on and just burn it all. They might go and just burn it all Burberry style. Imagine if that happens. New ADAS could be forced to literally burn up to $500 million worth of unsold apparel, which is hilarious because in one way, there was a time earlier on when some of the ADAS executives were like boasting about owning the IP and essentially lauding it and holding it over Kanye's head that they've got the rights to his brand and he doesn't own them and they can do what they want. But the reality of it is they know the value of Yeezy is intrinsically tied to Kanye West. You know, he was a person that started the thing. He debuts the new colorways. He's always talking about it. He had full control. Like you can't then separate the man from the brand. It's just impossible. Or if you do, you're going to do it at a loss. They didn't want to do it at a loss, of course. So they'd rather burn it, burn it, than give it to the kids. Absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely incredible. And I absolutely hate it um, in all ways, shapes and form. And I honestly, my honest opinion of this is that I always initially thought at the time, it was a little bit hasty for them to cut the deal so quickly, especially even the way that Gap did it. Gap was super aggressive. They came out, they cancelled the deal with Kanye. I think the same day, they took all the stuff off the shelves in the stores. Like, they were going hard, Gap. They made a real good stance. But again, you know, a lot of it is Ye's fault because I think Ye really, really turned off people that work at these companies i think the guys that work at adidas the corporate guys hated him the gap dudes hated him you know he was there barking at them on videos talking to him in a disrespectful manner no no respect just like you know these guys are all about their status and their reputation and how they looked at to have this guy this black man just standing there shouting at them making them feel like flipping peons it definitely didn't sit right with them so you know they made it known and they made sure to kind of get it out there and kind of go from there so it is what it is but Another thing I wanted to mention quickly was this picture. 
that features Ye out recently with a few of his friends, right? Out and about in the town doing what it needs to do. And I find it interesting because number one, this isn't meant as a kind of harsh comment, just as the reality of life. Don't you find it interesting that Ye's wife, this lady called Bianca, who um, was um, also a employee at Yeezy, I think she was an architect or something. She's a trained architect, actually, legitimately. Don't you find that she looks very different in these real life pictures compared to the pictures that we saw online? When it was first leaked that she was, they were getting married, they were sharing pictures of her from her Instagram and all this sort of stuff and these cool photo shoots where she looked really hot and all that malarkey. She looks very different, like in motion, real life than her Instagram account. And I guess it's just a standard thing of like society in general. People just look really, really different. But she looks very different. But then the other thing also, you have to know, is that Ye really does seem to have, um, I wouldn't say no type, but he, he does seem to be just like a, a lover in it in general. Like there is no kind of tie, you could say, to the former, you know, hotties that he's kind of been with. He kind of just goes for people that he kind of is into, which I think is kind of cool in a weird way. There is no kind of, you know, he's not just got like a row of flipping mixed race baddies. They're all really different in terms of what they look like and whatnot. Maybe the other, maybe there's one of them that kind of people are saying looks a bit like, looks a bit like Kim. But if anything, I think Kim was maybe trying to look like her because, you know, she's legitimately mixed race and shit. But in general, I find that quite cool. And obviously, um, this loving that he seems to have now with these flipping um, combats is nice. I think, if I'm not mistaken, these are Balenciaga boots that he's now tucking into his boots themselves, which I think is a pretty hard look. And the other thing I wanted to mention was this. This guy here, this is that George, I think his name is George. Yeah, that's him, Guillermo Andrade from the brand 444. He definitely looks like he's been up a million hours. I wish I could see the picture of it to zoom in. But this is probably what fashion does to you. Running a fashion brand, running a store and whatnot. You know, he definitely looks like he's been up a million and million and seven hours. But yeah, Kanye's looking good there. I'm not too sure if that jacket is up and coming Yeezy. But I know the combat pants are definitely Balenciaga because I recognize the, you know, the placement of the pockets and stuff. They fit amazing. They're kind of high-waisted, they cinch at the waist. And clearly Kanye's been, um, you know, he's been on the slipping keto diet. He's doing intermittent fasting because he looks flipping tight and taut as hell in that outfit fit and it fits him like an absolute glove and they look absolutely amazing and this lady for every reason looks like she's covered in so many bandages and stuff like stuff is putting it together but anyway regardless it looks cool and i loved it so big up him and then the other thing to also mention was this little um quote taken from the ceo of adidas the new one who said this in my opinion yeah he's maybe the most creative and i would say um a person that has never been in our industry so it's pretty clear that if this guy was around when Ye said what he said about Hitler and the Jews and just whatever else he said, he probably would have weathered the storm. He would have said, you know what, let's hold tight, let's sit tight and let's kind of weather the storm. Because what we've seen so far, look at Balenciaga, that crazy stuff with the BDSM bears happened and now life has gone back to normal. It's all been forgotten about. So I feel like they could have weathered the storm. If Alexander Wang still has a career, if Dolce Gabbana still have, you know, a brand that's thriving and they've got the, the Kylie Jenner flipping front in their campaigns, I think Ye could have survived if the brands weren't as, you know, nervous to kind of get rid of him, which makes me think as well, maybe it's just easier getting rid of someone like a Kanye, number one, being black, and number two, just being so, so easily unlikable. Like, he's just got a personality that you would imagine in real life must be so hard to get on with. So that probably makes it easier to kind of tell him to fuck off because you just don't like him as a person. And a lot of business you would imagine, especially at that kind of level, is on 
a sort of like relationship type of vibe, you know? If I vibe with you and you vibe with me, we can kind of make it work and we can maybe excuse certain things or look by certain bad sales figures and whatnot because that relationship is there. But if I don't feel that relationship is there, I don't feel that the respect is there, it's very hard to kind of do business. So that may be the reason why it kind of went where it went, isn't it? That could be the reason why it went where it went. But I find this really funny too. This clip is hilarious because look what's happened in culture. There was a time when being a yay fan, people would think, oh my God, you're inspiring, you're motivational, you're driven, you're creative. Um, you've got these really big lofty dreams about yourself and what you're trying to do and whatnot. But nowadays, because of a few risque comments and crazy stuff said online and stuff, Ye's name has been completely muddied. He's been completely stained and tainted now in culture to the point where when kids are dating, if you say to somebody that you're a Ye fan, it immediately elicits this following reaction. Are there any type of philosophers that you would say you find yourself really akin to or that like really have influenced you? Uh, Kanye West, Steve Jobs and my father. Did you just say Kanye West? <laughs> he creates culture. He creates conversation. He changes people's minds. But and he's anti-Semitic like, and he's against... Well, but, like, but the thing that... How is... Like, yeah, I know, I know, I, I know. But as far as... Oh. Kanye West. I'm sorry. As far as, uh, as, far as his comments on like the anti-Semitic stuff, stuff, like the I like Hitler, I don't, I don't really... Sorry to interrupt. I'm gonna, I'm gonna end this. Um... Again, I don't watch the show, but I've seen clips of it. But I don't think I've ever heard the narrator, person, type, whatever it may be, stopping the interview. Like, telling him to kind of go away. Like, he didn't even get a chance to, like, I would say, articulate or defend himself. It was that bad. It's such, like, Kanye's name has become legitimately radioactive. It's toxic as hell. You can't be a Ye fan nowadays um, unapologetically. It's kind of like something you have to say in secret. But it's also funny that he didn't make any attempt to be like, hey, I love him as nice. I like what he does, but I just don't agree with some of his views. I like the fact that he tried to kind of sit in the, yeah, he can say what he wants. This is Ye. Ye is like to say what he wants. But unfortunately, saying that, would damage your ability to <laughs> would damage your ability to flipping connect with certain people that's a that's ability oh man that's a, i love it i absolutely love it anyway continue what's it going here to talk about oh let's talk about this what people are saying here in chat um why did yeah uh yeah what does what do yes what did, mr no says wow did az just say ali that's found it easier to fire yeah because he's a black guy AD, az doesn't think nazi support isn't a big issue is this typically a black no i didn't say that you were putting words in my mouth mr no i did not say that they found it easy just because he's black and not because of what he said i said those things could have played a role in it because we've seen other people from other cultures say crazy shit do crazy shit some of them go to prison for crazy shit and come out and stuff is definitely different from them than it is for other people in other cultures it just is what it is let's not try and kind of rewrite the narrative on this one it just simply is what it is um i still just think especially when you think about what happened look at alexander wang being a good example and again he's asian so it's not even a black thing it's just a societal thing. I don't know. Maybe it's a black thing specific. I don't know. Alexander Wang was accused of, and there was always a corroborating evidence that he was spiking guys' drinks during fashion weeks and sexually assaulting them to the point where some people were going as far as saying that Alexander Wang may have purposely, may have raped some of these guys, allegedly. I'm not saying he did or didn't, but allegedly he may have raped these guys. And Alexander Wang is a very popular, very well-known fashion designer with a brand with his, you know, with his name on it. 
he's very visible out there. But for whatever reason, you know, the charges against him or the accusations kind of going to drop because I think he raised the resolution with the guys who accused him of what they accused him of. And again, I'm not going to blame the dudes for settling because, you know, sometimes going through the court system and all that sort of stuff and charging up trauma can be difficult. But they forgave him. But for some reason, the industry also forgave him and just turned a blind eye to it like it didn't happen. But I just honestly think, like, look at somebody like an Ian Connor, for instance. He's been accused of what he's been accused of and you can believe it, you cannot believe it. Um, but it's gone where it's gone to. And he's, you know, every time he puts out a tweet, you'll see people writing, you know, 32 or how many victims he allegedly has or whatnot. And it hasn't been able to go away from him. And ever since then, you know, he's not really been invited or allowed back into the, you know, to the arms of industry or whatnot because of that stain he had on his name. But Alexander Wang gets write-ups on Vogue.com and stuff. He's able to do ads with, you know, certain brands or whatnot. The rules are just different. I don't know why it is like that, but the rules are different for some reason. And I just feel like, Considering what we saw with Balenciaga and those BDSM bears, you would think in this world that we live in now, especially given how sensitive people are to issues concerning kids and pedophilia and abuse and all this sort of stuff and, you know, subliminal messages and whatnot, you'd think in this sort of era, if a brand did what Balenciaga did, you'd think that'd be the end for them. But it wasn't. It was a momentary thing. It was a blip. They come back. They're on a fashion week. Now everything's kind of forgiven. So I just feel like for every reason, there is a pick There's a pick and choose in terms of how much outrage goes to certain people and how much outrage goes to other people. No one's saying what Kanye didn't say, what he said was abhorrent. No one's saying that it wasn't bad. It was terrible. It was disgusting. Seeing him, seeing the guy that I kind of idolized for a long time go on these rants and do things was horrendous. Seeing him burying his friends and talking disrespectfully about Virgil and stuff, like it was disgusting to see that what he was saying, what he was doing. No one stands by it. That goes without saying but let's not also let's not also try and pretend like you know um the way that he got kind of dealt with by the industry wasn't somewhat selective in terms of what how, how other people or maybe a bit more extra than other people i don't know why that is the case who knows but it is different for every reason who knows i just said maybe it's because he's black maybe because he's unlikable again i'm i'm a big Kanye fan but i also know from people that have kind of been in around his circle that he's not a very likable person to hang out with on a personal level. He's kind of hard to like, but because he's such a genius and so good at what he does, people kind of excuse that. But this is the first time he kind of felt the consequences of his kind of actions and stuff. Um, and people didn't excuse it because of his art. But he's always kind of been like this, but it was kind of behind the scenes sort of thing. So yeah, um, you know, I'm all for... I'm all for feedback and stuff, but, you know, the putting words in people's mouths and stuff and saying they said certain things is just a bit weird, personally. But hey, what do I know? Talking about feedback, this article, courtesy of Seth Rogen and The Guardian, is really good because it makes me think and wonder, what's going on with culture right now? I feel like we're living in a really interesting time with culture and creative where I feel like there's this kind of, it feels like there's like a contempt that artists and creatives have with their fans and audience in general. And I'll try and, I'll try and make this link. This is Curse of the Guardian. It says as follows. Seth Rogen, negative reviews are devastating. I know people who have never recovered. And it's an interview that he did with a really popular podcast that we have here in the UK um, with this guy called Stephen Bartlett, who's a really famous business person, entrepreneur here, who has a podcast called Diary of a CEO. So he said as follows. Um, 
Rogan described negative press coverage as a trade-off for success in the film industry, but said that criticism hurts everyone. I think if most critics knew how much it hurts the people that made the things that they are writing about, they would second-guess the way that they write these things. It's devastating. I know people who have never recovered from it, honestly. A year, a decade of being hurt by film reviews, very personal. That's something that people carry with them literally their entire lives. I get why it fucking sucks. I want to link this to comments because I feel like nowadays... Critic reviews, especially stuff like Rotten Tomatoes, are actually looked down upon by the audience. People usually will go to Rotten Tomatoes review and if they see the reviews from the from the journalists and from the critics to be panning it and saying it's terrible, but then the reviews from the fans saying it's brilliant, they'll go and watch it. And if they see the critics praising it, but the fans dismissing it, they'll not watch it. So actually fans are a little bit more tuned to like realizing that. And because of comment sections and stuff, I feel like fans have now got the ability to communicate directly how they feel about something. A YouTuber puts out a video, like I love to do, you scroll down to the comments, you read what people are saying and how they've received what they've said, and you can maybe start some debates, find people to talk to, maybe you can find other creatives. It's a really cool, interesting thing. But for some reason, I feel like because these comment sections have become, it's all like democratized, you know, feedback and criticism and kind of empowered people on both sides, people creating the content, people kind of enjoying it. For some reason, the people that create the content are now becoming very sensitive to the idea of their fans giving them any kind of feedback or letting them know how they feel about what they've done. Sometimes fans don't give feedback. Sometimes it's not constructive. Sometimes it's just an emotion. Like, this is shit. This is good. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Like, reducing that as saying that, oh, this is not good criticism because it doesn't come from an educated point of view is almost dismissive, right? And I feel like, in general, it speaks to the overall sense out there that with some creators where they feel like their fans are somewhat beneath them like there isn't a kind of respect for the fandom which i never really understood especially because maybe because I've, I've been obsessed with the internet i'm on social media all the time and i'm in forum kid and i was on chat rooms so to me harsh comments and negativity never really affected me because you know i've just grown up on forums where people would would rip you because of your outfit or destroy you on forums because i remember one time on a forum specifically this forum about supreme where i didn't recognize the store window of the supreme store in new york one of the original locations where they had these tvs lined up right these, these kind of um, um old school tvs with the backs on it right really kind of nice little display where they play like skateboarding movies and shit on it and i didn't recognize it and i remember saying one in the forum oh what's the store with the tvs in the window and some of the guys on there who at the time must have been like in their 30s and i was maybe 18 lighting me up destroying me to the point where they were like getting at me trying to you know basically trying to e-bully me which is silly because it's the internet just turn it off and go away but just it was funny but i remember that being a thing so maybe it's kind of toughened me up to it but it's not really i never really see criticism as that as being that serious or being that deep so i just feel like in overall for whatever reason even though these people that create content do it for the fans for the most part and you hope the fans can connect with it and make it a cult hit or make it an underground hit or just connect with it in general and just want you know make you inspired to do more or help you to break even i don't know why this contempt happens like what's with the contempt it feels like people just don't respect the fan base and just dismiss it because i feel like this this what he's saying about critics could more be applied to fans because fans now get the chance to say hey that movie sucked 
they write comments and they also vote with their clicks they vote with their views they vote with their engagement they just you can tell when they don't want or like something um no amount of good coverage no amount of gaslighting um none of that is going to ever 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 change the fact that people either like something or they don't like something and i think fans are always correct in that regard it says here yeah, it feels very personal rejection he added asked about uh, green hornet the 2011 superhero movie in which guardian critic uh, peter bradshaw said everything about it is disappointing rogan said the reviews were coming out and it was pretty bad people hated it and it seemed like people were taking joy and disliking it a lot but it opened at to 35 million which was the biggest opening weekend i'd ever be associated with it did pretty well in contrast he said the reaction to the 2014 kim jong-un assassination comedy the interview was more painful people were taking joy and talking a shit about it and really questioning the types of people that would be walking into a movie like that that felt far more personal green hornet felt like i had fallen victim which was true to a big fancy thing that was not so much about creative failure on our past but a conceptual failure the interview people treated us like we were creatively failed and which sucked more i just want people to grow up grow up grow up and suck it up part of being a creative part of putting yourself out there online is to receive feedback or comments either end whether it's praise whether it's non-praise and i just don't know why we've kind of reached this point in society with 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 creative especially how it's been democratized and the barrier of entry is so low and there's so many different entry points to get into and the platforms are so easy to use and stuff why on some regards it's made people more sensitive if anything it should make you less sensitive because you know that sometimes even platforms legit you could post a video on facebook and get praise for it then you post on instagram and get panned for it different audiences occupy different platforms and sometimes people just don't like what you do on either platform but it shouldn't stop you from going out there and creating what you want to create especially if it comes from a real place it shouldn't matter if people praise you or they pan you but for some reason we live in just really overly sensitive society where people are quitting touring because they can't handle not getting good ticket sales they are not reading reviews they're deleting their accounts after they drop an album it just feels so bizarre this world that we're living in where these people who are meant to be like performers and amazing um you know artists and stuff are putting stuff out and sometimes it sucks and they're getting annoyed when people tell them it sucks it's like guess guess what but i also do think it just is a general it just speaks to the overall um lack of respect that certain creatives have with fans and i just don't know why that is especially when you think of this art form in itself or just the you know the, the, the aspect of creating or being creative in any kind of sense where you kind of want to make money you're gonna have to connect with the people people are gonna have to like what you do and if they don't like what you do and they say it that shouldn't hurt your feelings it just is what it is maybe make something that they like or focus on just making something you like but this idea that you can control the narrative just because you don't like it is horrendous i hate it so much like one of the one of the reasons one of the people that i hated a lot for it was uh ari lennox the r&b singer incredibly talented but she'd go on these tirades online just complaining and moaning about people having something to say about the song that she put out and not liking the future or being angsty that she hasn't dropped an album like actual fans hungry to talk to you communicate with you to get more of you you're getting annoyed about it or people that are critical or maybe you know ask you about your lyrics and stuff and you get annoyed and take it personal i just don't know man i just feel like this overly sensitive era we're living in is weird it's twofold because i think it produced really great art 
if you're overly sensitive, there is this idea that you can tap into your emotions more because you're you know more accessible and you can feel them and stuff. But it also kind of leads to so many crybabies, like too many crybabies. And I've just had enough of it. Like just grow up. Like it's not it's not that big of a deal. People didn't like your movie and it sucked. Cool. But you're still a multi-millionaire that lives a life that most people would only dream of living. You know, the life isn't that bad to be honest. There isn't as bad as you're trying to make it seem as. But you know, what can you do? It is what it is. So talking about fans. And loving them again we have to speak about this so this article is courtesy of mixmag regarding the one and only fred again and he's been getting absolutely panned online and i'm kind of in my um what's that word called i'm kind of in my um red bar era i'm feeling a little bit red barish because everybody's panning fred again and going in on him and making him a bit of a meme um, for privilege and all this sort of malarkey it's kind of making me think you know what if everyone hates him i might start being an unapologetic flipping fred again fan just to kind of rewrite the flipping or to kind of rebalance the scales because i feel the criticism against him is just so over the top and so unnecessary and in general it kind of really avoids or kind of dismisses or really doesn't focus on actual problems in the industry especially in dance music that needs to be addressed like i mentioned at the beginning of the show like how do you go from being a bedroom dj to playing a fabric what is that process why is the process so flipping difficult and nonsensical and doesn't you know what i mean and kind of you know so different for different people and there's no real clear path like why are they only booking certain people to play in these kind of festivals why right? representation some people say but never actually deliver on and when they do deliver on it it's too heavy-handed and dismisses the idea that you have to be good at what you do in order to kind of get these spots <coughs> sorry i'm getting a bit freaky chucked up here not really but anyway why are artists releasing stuff like nini h Rude, for instance got all these flipping amazing tracks online on spotify on you know streaming platforms but not getting paid for their work why are festivals so expensive why are ticket prices for clubs so expensive why are certain places in the country not able to have late licensing deals or whatnot to allow people to go and rave in certain places all these things are very more important why is amy lammy still have a job like these are more important than whether or not Fred Again's parents have a blue line under their flipping names on it. Don't get me wrong. Fred Again's background is insane. Legitimately insane, right? Like I, I've only kind of been checking it really because of the article about Fred Again. And I'm quickly going to post it up on here and kind of get up on the screen. But it is legitimately maybe the most privileged um, background I've ever seen of any artist ever really he might be one of the most like legitimately privileged artists i've ever seen so let's not discount that and i know you know you check his name you go on this flipping wikipedia you see he's only 29 years old um you scan down on his wiki you see his family listed here in his early life and you see that he's a son of a king's council barrister right so barrister barrister sorry charles anthony wanford gibson and his uh and marianne morgan members of the british peerage and um, he's a grandson of aristocrat and financier shane o'neill and third baron o'neill and british editor socialite and fleming right um who later on wanted to marry a flipping bond the creator of bond so clearly guy comes from immense privilege cool whatever all right cool story anecdotally let's move on from that one but i just feel like the article itself and how they're kind of trying and how people are uh, panning this mixed mag article it obviously it comes from a place of it feeling like payola which it does. And I think business, business Teshno highlighted it really well. Big up business Teshno, definitely my favorite um, electronic music platform in terms of spreading some of this news and getting it out there. But I feel like they did a really good job of sort of like highlighting it. Right. And I think it might be this post here. 
Let me just see if I can get it up on here. Bear me one second. Um, no, I think not. I think it's this post. So it's this. It's, it's a number of posts. So they post on here, Business Teshno, regarding the whole issue. The first post they posted on the Instagram, Mix Mag and Co. trying to really hard to convince people that Fred again is some sort of working class guy. And another one, they've got a really good post here from Mix Mag regarding this article they did writ regarding um J what you call it Fred again and they use three different headlines right and it's got it here in the caption Miss Mag has 334,000 followers on Twitter they posted the same Fred again article three times post one got 27k views post two with a caption that is far more um, that's far from reality that is at least misleading got half a million views and post three um, with a normal fact based on caption got 4k views um, Mix Mag cover Feb um cover feb equals uh, 7.8 views as mentioned before it's not really about fred again's success or upbringing despite the latter playing a role in the success yesterday if people don't want to see why people are not happy with mixed mag and coverage it's okay but don't come here and pretend everyone is just jealous and hating on fred again so this makes my statement and as you can see here from the captions they've got different captions from mixed mag's twitter about how they're promoting the article written in different ways um the, the first one reads fred again may not have drove may not have droves of crying teens waiting for him at jfk but his rise from little lone label producer to selling out arenas in under three years and the fervent dedication shown by his fans is a phenomenal on itself the second one says fred again the appeal is that he is whoever he wants to be he, he is whoever you want him to be he is the guy you smoke rollies with he's the one pouring you pints he's inviting you over to his house to play some tunes that was one of the most successful and then of course the third one says the apparent spontaneity of fred again um, means that um, fans wanting to have the real experience need to stay need to stay engaged with his social media near constantly with those pursuing the right minute able to get their hands on the secret tickets so obviously those points are you know they're 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 based on some sort of fact and i understand it and like i said before payola is always annoying especially when people pretend it doesn't exist it's kind of like that saying don't piss on me and tell me it's raining that's the annoying part of it so people will pretend like the guy's growth has been somewhat organic but let's not also discount what role pr has played into his success and maybe being signed with a certain label certain representation certain booking agency all these things are going to contribute to you being successful but for whatever reason these people in these industries especially if you listen to or watch flipping ims lectures and stuff like i do like an idiot from the ib for music summit you hear people from clubs from publications from booking agencies telling you this fanciful story about how to make it when the reality is a little bit more nuanced a little bit more heavy-handed brown envelope lace than they'd like you to believe it to be so they kind of make it seem as one thing and then when it comes to his background i also understand how some people can look at it and think hey he's not working class why are you trying to make it seem like he's one of the lads when he's not really one of the lads right he's one of the fucking dukes he's one of the chaps do you know what i mean he's not one of the lads at all i completely understand it and i think that's also a faux pas for whatever reason in society especially in the arts maybe because it was always an an outlet for the unrepresented unrepresented um downtrodden working class people to kind of get their expression out there and to kind of tell their story that's maybe an intrinsic part of it for whatever reason people of privilege go out of their way to hide their privilege and sort of distance themselves from it 
a good example I can think of from my experience is Dash Snow, one of my favorite graffiti artists and a real mainstay figure, a legendary figure of the New York art scene, who unfortunately passed away over heroin overdose. He was very well known to be someone that came from immense wealth, but did it was always a secret. He didn't really want everyone to know, and he also distanced himself completely from his family, completely cut himself off. And I think the only person who had access to him from his family was an aunt or great great aunt or something who was really kind of tapped in with street culture and kind of loved it all and was basically there to kind of help him out whatever he needs to do. But he went out of his way to say, "Hey, I'm rejecting this and I'm embracing this life of you know, um, you know, shoplifting and graffiti and streetwear and living this amazing New York um, artistic lifestyle and just kind of living that kind of life. He kind of didn't want to be a part of it. So I understand that kind of tension if you do grow up in privilege. For me, I've never seen the issue with it. Um, I feel like if you have privilege, that allows you to to do what Peggy Goo did and essentially, you know, find yourself in Berlin and go on a world tour and then eventually end up being a world famous artist. I think that's amazing. But don't hide the fact, like you know, in Peggy Goo's case, don't hide the fact that your dad's a fucking CEO of fucking Samsung. That's not. That just there's no point in hiding that because eventually people find out it and it'll make it it'll make seeing your origin story a bit weird and people will kind of have odd impressions around it but i just want to highlight the article itself i feel like is people kind of miss kind of read it because i feel like it's a real kind of um love story to fandom and being able to connect with people because a part of predator against success also you have to be said was timing was the fact that somehow his songs and his tracks connected with people during the pandemic and loads of people in this article are saying the same thing and if you watch the boiler room that he did recently oh no the one that was most famous the one that's got like it's maybe a million views i'm not really sure what the views are but watch the video boiler room in london have usually got a reputation of being pretty crap people don't dance a lot there's a lot of kind of you know posting up and watching each other criticizing people's outfits and just trying to be too cool but that was one of the many that's one of maybe a few london boiler rooms in recent years that i've seen where people were absolutely losing it they were having the bestest time and most of the people in the crowd that were going crazy or in and around fred again looked very young loads of rosy cheeked kids right that looked maybe in their early 20s maybe even teenagers absolutely loving it being in the midst of their one of their favorite artists and having the time of their lives so clearly fred again has fans that love what he does it's not all just payola and uh, pr machine and all this malarkey but it did play a role in it so it's kind of twofold but i feel like people just dismiss the fact that he connects with his fans and he's clearly able to kind of talk to them and communicate them in a way where they love and appreciate him in a whole different way and they've basically propelled his career the fans have you know um, Mixmag can write as many taglines and tweets as they want but you know Mixmag can't get fans to sell out Madison Square Garden they can't get you know Mixmag can't make you buy tickets essentially you still have to be a fan to kind of go and buy them so I guess this article does a good way of kind of describing it right it's in, in certain parts here um, let's continue here and says um, yeah this one despite just being one stop of the producer's first world tour with the third actual life still being packed in pressing plant um, shipping boxes the demand for tickets to catch him at the 5,000 capacity South London venue with over 46,000 people attempted to get tickets for just one night according to those who tried because I guess they'd probably get them from ticket swap right these are statistics it became a meme on social media fans documented their joking but not jokingly willingness to trade their firstborn to pay three times face value or even give out sexual favours in order to secure a spot the quote 
I panicked thinking I wouldn't get tickets when the European gigs were announced, Georgie Atkinson, 26-year-old student studying at the University of Cambridge, tells me. I bought emergency um, tickets from Paris Date. Happily, I managed to go to one of the Brixton shows, but I would have been more than happy to potter across the channel to see him. So people are willing to travel to parts of Europe to go and see this guy press buttons on an NPC machine and go crazy behind the decks and stuff. Like, this is what he does to people. Like, clearly, the guy has found a connection with his fans. The people are now talking about whether or not he's his dad has a fucking you know blue line or url link on his name that's not important really i don't feel like study maybe how he's been able to connect with his fans in this way but also acknowledge yes the media machine has helped yes maybe the ability to you know do what you want when you're growing up and have brian eno as your fucking neighbor can maybe spearhead your career but still brian eno can't make kids especially gen z kids that don't even know who fucking brian eno is they can't make them buy tickets they can't make them get Eurostars. they can't make them jump on a ryanair to go see someone play it doesn't work like that um, it continues the proliferation of Fred again isn't limited to Europe either North America has its own share of extreme reactions there were reports of tickets for his recent tour going for $500 can can even Solomon command that kind of fee Solomon's fucking popular in dance music people love Ricardo Villalobos people want to suck on Jamie Jamie Jones's schlob people like Seth Truxler Michael Bibby is quite popular but I've never seen people trying to sell a ticket to see Michael Bibby play I sold that show in Printworks for $500 that clearly shows that people love and appreciate what he does. So I feel like the the privileged thing and the upbringing thing really dismisses or really kind of kind of turns away the idea or kind of just loses focus on actually what he does really well, which is obviously produce music that kids love, they connect with it and they want to push it forward, clearly to some regard. Again, it's not for me. The whole voice notes thing I find really, really insufferable and a little bit disingenuous because I don't think I've ever left somebody a voice in my, my entire life, especially telling them a story, let alone a voice note. I'm just not that guy. So the fact that these people are out there going around like doing fucking walkie-talkies on their phone where you could just call somebody, I find that quite idiotic and then using those things to kind of make tracks is dumb but let's not lie when you first heard that track with um the blessed madonna talking about the pandemic that one that he kind of produced i forgot what the name of it is and it first played don't get me wrong when you first heard that you did get some feels i know i did it sounds a little bit boring now and it kind of didn't really you know it didn't age well but when that first dropped let's not lie that that, that shit hit let's not lie it continues um along with his new best friend skrillex and fortet sold out surprise show in madison square garden in just four minutes on the other side of the planet a secret pop-up rave in melbourne australia early this month is reported too just imagine the image of fortet skrillex and fred again selling out madison square garden you know how awkward those three guys look People used to get people used to take the piss out of ben ufo how about awkward he looks ben ufo just looks like a regular english dude if you don't know what English guys look at, he just looks like a regular English dude. Fred again, especially Fortet. Do you see how Fortet looks like? He's not selling tickets based on his looks. That guy's not Harry Styles. So people are turning out and selling out Madison Square Garden for those guys. And even Skrillex, right, who's kind of stuck in 2005. They're going there because they love and connect with their music. It might not be for you, but I feel like the dismissing of them as artists because you know you're not into it or because like i said before their parents have urls on their names it's just weird to me it continues um 
da, da, da. it's admittedly extraordinary that somewhat groundbreaking reaction to an electronic producer with unmistakable underground inspired sound again we need to relax with all this stuff um, then Fred again hasn't had any ordinary rights I promise born in London but educated in a prestigious worship based boarding school so again it's mentioning his privilege here and Fred again aka Fred Gibson spent over a decade in classical music before becoming a protege of seminal ambient artist and family friend Brian Eno when he was 16 years old so let's not lie about the thing right but born in some level of privilege maybe having access to things that more people don't have access to being able to Brian you know fucking Brian Eno makes a big sense makes a big difference but again pull some bits apart here the thing that I feel like really kind of stands out and why this might be something to really kind of hone in especially for dance music he's somewhat classically trained and I feel like for me, thinking about some of the best producers out there in the scene, most of it has this come to do this idea of like being multifaceted and not just relying on just one sound, which you're seeing a lot with these kids now with this hardcore sound of it sounding kind of trite and kind of boring, even house, even techno to some regard. And why it sounds really trite and really boring and it lacks in groove is because I feel like a lot of these guys are pulling from the same reference points, which is just other techno records that were created. Very rarely are you hearing them talking about listening to R&B, hip hop, country, pop. Um, synth pop electro whatever it may be it's all very genre concentrated it's all very locked in on the genre if i listen i don't listen to anything else but i feel like the best musician and artist no matter what genre they're into or what they made were into everything i think of the immediate thing to me comes from um you know quincy jones lo loving flipping stravinsky right classical music like and it you know and being kind of connected with how that connects with your left brain and your right brain and the emotion of it of course if you're listening to stravinsky maybe that kind of knowledge and that education can lead into you also being able to produce, you know, a flipping legendary album like Flipping Thriller for Michael Jackson. That can also inform it. So of all this kind of privilege that's been said there, maybe the ability to be born where he was born allowed him to, you know, the ability to kind of access to certain things. But the lesson to be learned here that people can pull nowadays, because you can't let him, you can't rewrite his history or go back into his mother's womb. But what you can pull from this is like, hey, this guy that's been able to make really, you know, um, genre defining electronic music of our times that connects with Gen Z kids and just people in general is that he's also somewhat trained in other genres, classically trained, has a different understanding of music, maybe in a quick analytical sense, whatever it may be, that may have informed how he makes music in dance music. That might go some way. That's really important too. Maybe the fact that he can read music, all that sort of shit, that kind of buys into it. But again, because he's rich or because he comes from privilege, doesn't matter it continues his first credits came in 2014 as songwriter on brian Eno's. <laughs> okay it's funny to do this it's like, jesus christ becoming an alumni of the red bull music academy in tokyo in the same year um, from there he found success as a producer in the mainstream music world and working on who's um who are the chart success including this is early on before he even started flipping making dance music he was working with little mix ellie golding bts rita aura westfield sorry west life sorry, westfield with charlie xcx and clean bandit the list goes on in 2019 gibson also was involved in the production of the 30 percent of the uk number one singles <laughs> and later earning Gibson the Grammy nomination for Song of the Year for the Colossal Bad Habits. However, simultaneously, Fred again began working on his more underground um, solo project, kicking off a Rinse FM residency in September, um, but it's much later on in the front of lockdown that Gibson dropped the first full-length solo record, Actual Life, and with it, a die-hard fanbase was born overnight. So, not really an overnight success, a kind of a long time coming, but that musical education he's got early on definitely played dividends. Let's not lie. Let's not flipping lie, right? Um, 
it continues here uh, that's really a story about some guy that he's got uh, another one here that's what I like what the fuck uh, the Dentonian producer has stammered over the London um, to Victoria Park I don't know what's happening right now during his mixed mother cover interview um, three months later in November 2021 Gibson described the experience as a very tense due to the technical malfunction on stage explaining that he's now familiar humble tenor that we've kind of got away with this because it's built on the tension I just force quit in front of however many thousand people um this the, the discernible modesty has become synonymous with gibson his lot of supporters have enamored with his down-to-earth public persona as his music and i'm just hoping i hope for the love of god that his public persona that he's got is also what he's like in in private because for whatever reason i don't know what it is about dance music and i've said it plenty of times before even myself being an up-and-coming dj and wanting to do this professionally sometime in the future and having aspirations of opening my own club i don't know why what it is about dance music it's it, especially djs it's on the lowest frunk of the entertainment ladder it's the easiest thing to do but for whatever reason the people that make it are the biggest pricks the biggest cunts the biggest bitches um the biggest pieces of shit the biggest fuckers in the world, like whether or not they're a DJ or they're an artist or they own the club, you meet so many wankers in this scene that it beggars belief. And the funny thing about it is that we all start from the same place. Doesn't matter where you're rich and poor, or you'll start from going to a shitty club somewhere, seeing somebody that's either really good that inspires us to try, or somebody that's really shit that inspires us to do it. That's that's why we all get into this. We either get inspired or we think I can do it better. But we all start from the same place, being ravers. And for every reason, people suddenly forget that. And as soon as they become really popular and they become really big, they kind of turn into absolute monsters. And I hope for the love of God that this Fred again guy isn't that dude. And he is as, you know, as kind of awkward and quirky and that kind of, you know, camera tism stuff that he does. I don't even know if it's real or whatever it may be. I hope that's all legit. And I hope he is like that as he comes across the interview to as sweet as he does as calm down to up as he does because you know i've met many uh, people from privilege who are really nice people who really go out their way to be super super lovely and i've also met people like complete cunts but i hope that's a fact i hope he's not a monster like everyone else is behind the scenes um and it continues um in lieu of the cool collected approach to promoting usually seen the underground electronic music acts again don't use the word underground of him please the guy was making hit records in 2019 man like come on and um, presidential gig run following his debut has characterized a fan participation this is where i get where business or fashion is coming business or fashion business tech show is coming from this constant little signaling that he's underground that it's a scrappy story it's like annoying because it's not true the actual true story is still inspiring. You don't need to keep forcing this idea that he's underground to us is a nonsense. The guy was, you know, fucking songwriting with Brian Eno when he was 16. Like, come on, let's let's relax. You don't get stuff for free, but also let's chill. Ahead of his string of UK dates, um, uh, shows in early 2022, Gibson has asked fans to suggest local venues that were important to them before inviting them along to a surprise show at Hackney Night's Tales. Jesus Christ. Imagine him playing on Night Tales. That must have been packed alongside High and Romy. And High's got a really good story as well about how um, they made it as well. So big up High. Um, uh, his subsequent tour was illustrated not by slick shots of cities where he visited, but by submitted videos from the dance floor to camera monologues expressing his enthusiasm, sorry, astonishment at crowd turnout and even at the show in Milan helping someone propose to their partner. I'm sorry, but this guy sounds lovely. Let's be real. He's actually comp- like the amount of DJs that I've met 
in real life or spoke to in DMs who are absolute cunts is really high. That's why I go out of my way not to speak to them and just kind of enjoy their artistry because it's really difficult if you have one bad interaction with somebody, even if it's like they've got a reason to because they're tired, they don't care, they've they got big, whatever, people got their issues. But having one bad interaction with somebody can really taint how you look at them. So I try not to do it, avoid it. And most DJs anyway, don't really like communicating with their fans. There's many DJs out there who get asked for tune IDs on a song that they release. They don't reply to comments. They don't even double tap shit. They leave you unseen. Like horrendous interaction with fans at all. It's just really a kind of like, I, I provide you the music, leave me alone kind of, kind of conversation. This guy is probably more famous than all of those guys combined. And he still has time to do with this stuff and to be this nice. I hope it's not performative. hope it's legit, but he does sound lovely. Let's be real. Similarly, when promoting his albums Actual Life 2 and Actual Life 3, fans were given the opportunity to vote which tracks would be released, posting rough wavs, asking which um, would be preferable for videos, given to, giving to the minute updates and sharing Zoom and FaceTime calls of his collaborators. Come on, brother, this guy is fucking legendary. Meaning that the entire both projects are coming out. Many fans were not only invested with the material, but felt sense of partnership in the musical process. He just seems like a genuine, normal guy, says 29-year-old Joe. And he does, especially when you consider he's fought. Like, look at his background. If you had this kind of background, if I had this kind of background, I'd be a fucking tyrant. I'm sorry. I'm a tyrant. His dad's a fucking a barrister for the fucking royal family. King's Council. In the United Kingdom and in some Commonwealth countries, a King's Council during the reign of, ter of, king, of king or Queen's Council during the reign of Queen is a lawyer who typically a senior trial lawyer, technically appointed by the monarch country to be the one of his or her majesty so basically it's their kind of lawyer lawyer residence that's what he does was if my dad's a lawyer in residence i'm acting all kinds of way you know that right and he seems to be pretty decent so let's give him credit and give his family actual some props for raising a guy who despite his crazy privilege is somewhat well adjusted <laughs> that's a big deal in my opinion personally for me maybe you guys aren't thinking any different but i think it's different um it continues here normal guy um project man for tooting said you can tell that he shows that he's appreciative of the love he's shown from the crowd and it's appreciated how you say that word reciprocated reciprocated whatever it's word um which itself creates an amazing atmosphere he just comes across as somebody that could be your pal enjoys the guinness and has a spectacular taste of music when did becoming someone's pal and enjoying guinness become a privilege what do people drink that live in fucking broccoli do they drink fucking pims every day or some shit like i'm sure people in broccoli drink red stripe i'm sure some of them drink um what's that drink with a black with the x on it that's fucking awful like you know beer's universal having a couple of lines is universal having a couple of dabs is universal dropping a couple of pills is universal <laughs> the fan focus interactivity of fred again projects seem to be paying off in the live set of coachella last year um heralding the beginning of his stateside takeover as the tour was going on when the tickets went on sale his debut show three days later many sold out in minutes back in europe a thousand strong crowd in barcelona primavera festival seemed to seem to shook even Gibson showing footage of an apparently endless sea of dancers during his set at a copper stage. And again, big up him also for cultivating a fan base that dances. I've seen videos of Peggy Goo. She's at a level now where her success and the celebrity is too much, where people are legitimately just coming to film her. It's quite sad, to be honest, how it must feel to be Peggy going to all these places, flying first class, you know, staying in the best hotels and then going to play to in front of your fans and just seeing a, f a, a sea of phones and no one dancing 
Like Fred can at least cultivate the fan base where they legitimately turn their back to him and they're having the bestest of time. They're just happy just to be there. They don't need to be right in front next to him. They don't need to be behind him. They just need to want to be in the presence around other Fredigan fans. That's absolutely incredible. I don't know how you do it, but he did it really well there. So big up him. Um, blah, 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 blah. He says here, um, this time last year, I hadn't played a live show yet. This is mad. Behind the scenes, Gibson was also preparing for a release of Actual Free, working with the all-star cast of Fortet, Rico Nasty, Flo Dan, Skrillex, and Swedish Half Mafia. However, despite an atypical approach to growing his fan base, it was a traditional tried and tested method of producer on the rise, promoting a new record that would have catapult Gibson from Dance Music Favorite to Household Name, a ballroom set in July 2022. Filmed in the East London Warehouse, Gibson set featured mostly production cuts and drumming furiously on a sample pads as a horde of mid ravers grew um through gun fingers and round him that was the first time i actually saw him perform that video of a boiler room instantly i knew i didn't like the music i thought it fucking sucked but the faces of the people around him i was like wow this guy's a star like that genuine emotion and passion and enthusiasm and love especially in london it doesn't come easy like we're harsh critics over here like we can we, we are the biggest haters in some regards so the fact that the fans connected that well to it i thought okay this guy's definitely got something um it was a perfect partnership a typical diy platform renowned for its unpolished presentation of dj sets and productive crowds and the approachable rough and around the age of superstar producer within 24 hours the set had racked up a staggering 150 000 views and has now surpassed 15 million views the tracks used in the mix shot up in the charts with sweetest matthews collaboration would turn out the lights again oh that track is so good featuring future turn out the lights i'm looking for oh no that's a hit the guy's the guy's got bangers he's got slaps okay url parents with urls or not um reaching to number 21 in the uk meanwhile spotify reports that while fred again's releases had been steadily rising around one to two percent of the month in 2022 and um, the following ballroom set in july um uh they rose by 50 percent and august by 89 percent. so again the same people criticizing him are also the same people who dismiss fucking Boiler Room's influence. Boiler Room is, you know, they've got their they've got their faux pas. Some of the stuff around the funding and whatnot is very very sketchy, and where that money went to, and some of the collaborations and who they've been sponsored by and whatnot suspect. But let's not get away from the core of it. As a platform, they have launched and boosted up so many careers. It kind of beggars even kind of belief to kind of catalog them all like what they've done for people it changes people's lives instantly so big up boiler room for all this faults and stuff they've done a lot for the scene for sure and even people they've got faults people just kind of correct them i think whore berlin wouldn't be what it is now if boiler room didn't exist right they see what they did wrong and then they do it right in their way love it the set um sprouted thousands of memes tattoos and halloween costumes and even making a star of the crowd member rodney who after inadvertently turning off the music halfway through the set due to some sort of enthusiastic dancing was the subject of entire reddit investigation to find his identity a title subject with over 5.4 million views and even a sports banger t-shirt aptly named rodney rod again so all that's all good yeah but on the other side of things you've got um platforms like business teshno not really too happy with the kind of you know the the shoving down of the throat of him which i completely understand and then um just kind of posting a different comments of other people in, in the scene talking about the kind of reception of fred again which i can understand in some regard this is from dweller the really influential festival out here 
So, so in America, um, you know, that's kind of spearheading and essentially reminding people of the roots of dance music, um, especially when it comes to techno and house and whatnot. And they've actually got a night coming up in Bergheim, which is incredible. They've got an entire flipping night that they're programming in Bergheim that's just full from top to bottom of flipping black creatives and black artists, black DJs. It's fucking fantastic. So big up Dweller. And obviously I'm a fan of Frankie and what she did with this woman. And, you know, like, look at this woman. You want to stick that this woman got earlier on and now look at all the festivals that we have now that are particularly kind of catering to certain communities and whatnot like they really did they didn't get enough props when they were around anyway it continues the dollar said as follows dollar account need to make an observation that the biggest magazine dance music primarily dj mag and mix mag did not write anything about this year's dweller festival not even an announcement an all black electronic music festival you'd think that would be a low-hanging fruit to cover but alas next slide um, as also the key to add that the festival was our biggest ever their coverage doesn't dictate the success of Dweller which is fucking sick by the way but only reveals that there is very little vested interest in covering underground culture ramblings and more interest in covering the opposite and that's why I said earlier about the Fredigan article say what you want about him he's good whatever the upbringing I think is a bit over the top but this idea that the guy's underground is insulting really insulting to our intelligence like even if i do a command f and i search underground like how many times have they said underground this guy was making hit records when he was 16 years old do you know what i mean like let's just not look look how many like there's 11 instances of the word underground being written on this article regarding fred again and he is nothing of he is nothing close to underground whatsoever he may work with some underground artists but his upbringing or his education or no education, but his kind of rise in music and his popularity has not been based on being underground whatsoever it's been based on being a musician a music head somebody that kind of um has been classically trained in all the right ways and was able to adapt and use that knowledge and passion and information and talent and basically be able to kind of pour it into dance music but the idea that he's underground is insulting so i definitely understand that part of it um and then if you see this one the final comment they made because i think they're getting some stick blowback from people commenting and saying the privilege doesn't really matter um the final comment from business Teshner was at the end of the day it doesn't really matter because resident advisor mix mag and co know what they're doing nothing will change as long as these platforms are led by people who are ignorant towards black and brown culture and also keep hiring staff who don't really care yeah fair enough that's a conversation we need to be had um i still think you know business Tesla does a very good job in terms of spreading this and making this you know known and they're probably way more influential and important to culture anyway than the ra especially since ra has kind of gone you know by the by and removed comments and has went in some weird direction i still think these guys influence culture way more the berlin uh, and you know ofc account that covers um, Bergheim and stuff all those pages are way more influential to culture than RA in my opinion even in Mixmag um, even though Mixmag does a good job of covering the high and low I don't think they're actually influencing culture as much as people think they are in general I think it's more of an industry kind of thing but I also understand the frustration that a lot of people feel when they feel like it's kind of heavy-handed and being poured down people's throats and stuff about his upbringing or how he come down or how he grew up and whatnot because at the end of the day um the privilege does kind of count it does sort of matter but it doesn't i don't think dictate how somebody's been able to be successful going through and going onwards with this sort of stuff but there's no denying there's no denying where's the flip there's no denying that the guy and the guys around him are incredibly awkward behind the decks and the lack of wheel ups or the, the 
the, un- the inability to wheel up a tune properly is probably Fred Again's greatest crime. Next to the double dots next to at the end of his name, which I fucking hate. You have to always type fucking Fred Again with a dot dot. It's fucking obnoxious as fuck. Like, stop it. Just call yourself Fred Again. There's no need to fucking double dot stuff. But regardless of that, it's kind of reminds me of like ASAP Rocky when he came about and, you know, the S was always a fucking dollar sign. Like, allow it. It's, it's pronounced ASAP and you're spelling it with a double dollar sign. With a, Like, come on. Especially nowadays. You're in your 30s. Like, allow the dollar sign. That aside, this video, um, for, was it Feb, Feb 17th from this account called uh, Gazia is hilarious. It features Skrillex and um, Forte and Fred again behind the decks. And Fred again attempts to wheel up a track with the most limp-wristed wheel up I've ever seen. Like, I'd hate to see what he looks like throwing a ball, like or a cricket ball or kicking a ball in general. It must be horrible to watch, but the wheel up is so bad. Probably off his head on pingers, bit of cat. And look at the wheel up. Oh, so bad. Fortet with his ghoulish face looking like, please, brother, allow it. Yeah, so that wheel up was terrible. That's probably his greatest crime ever. Um, Fred again should never be allowed behind the decks again um, if he's going to wheel up a track like that ever again. But I feel like the criticism and the kind of vitriol around him is too heavy handed and it's just too much at the end of the day. People are going overboard and they're kind of, you know, kind of you're losing focus on what the actual issues are that are really laid in dance music from representation um to diversity to lineups being all the same to ticket prices to just uh, like i said before in the beginning of this of this segment how do you go from being a bedroom dj to djing a fabric what is the path and why is it um that the path for the most part doesn't seem to be somewhat clear and why is it that the industry seems to cater and favor certain people and just kind of regurgitate the same lineups again and again and again it's just annoying there's loads of different things that need to be kind of looked at and the fundamental point of it to end it is why has Amy Lamy still got a job those things are way more important than whether or not fucking Fred against family are flipping rich or not because I feel like regardless of if they are um and just regarding his upbringing he was always destined to be a success anyway because his education has been fucking sublime it's been probably the most ideal right you don't have the pressures of having to work a regular job you've got all this amazing inspiration behind you Brian Eno's your fucking neighbor access all the best equipment you make hit records when you're super young um you get involved in the industry you, you know how to navigate that side of things and now you're kind of stepping you know out from the shadows and being a star yourself but the education and learning from other people from being in the studio is already there that kind of sets you up to go in a good way again not his problem not his fault but obviously that's a big deal but still he connects with the fans the fans love him that mixed mag article is literally a love letter to flipping his fandom the overuse of underground is annoying and they're clearly trying to spin it a certain way but that's just journalists being journalists so never trust them or talk to them but the kid definitely has fans definitely has people that love him and for the most part i feel like the criticism around him is really really excessive and over and and too much it's going overboard for the sake of it and maybe it's just people feeling you know confused inadequate um and just annoyed that another kind of you know typical white dude the way he looks the way he looks um has made it despite them kind of grafting and plugging away where they are i understand that's giving me frustrating but that kind of energy and frustration needs to be poured back into the arts in some way or maybe different conversations to be had but not it shouldn't be personal it's not really his fault it's the system that kind of facilitates and allows those kind of things to kind of thrive that needs to be attacked and not the person itself in my opinion because i think the person clearly connects with people you look at that boiler room those those kids that are there are not crisis actors they 
they fucking love what he does. He connects with them. They connect with him. They sell it out. Like, you know, who's reselling fucking dance music events tickets for $500 on fucking ticket swap? That's insane. I mean, even Michael Bibby doesn't do those kind of numbers. Like, that's nuts. So clearly the fans love it. If the fans love it, respect the fans, don't dismiss it. And kind of, if you don't like it, just turn it off. No big deal. Anyway, that's me. Agassino Zinger Show, episode number 653. I'm done. I'm finished. Thanks so much for tuning in. It's been a pleasure to have your company. If it's your first time checking out the show, you know what to do. Smash like, hit subscribe, leave me a comment down below. And of course, if you want to review it as well, that'd be great too. Um, but you don't have to do that. I'm also going to be playing the tune of the day um, at coming up. If you listen to the audio podcast, you'll hear that. If you not listen to audio podcast, you won't hear it. And it'll just fade to black. But until next time, my friends, peace, take care. Have a good one. And I'll see you guys very, very soon. Peace. I got the native